This podcast is for mature audiences only and may include cussing, cursing, fidgeting, rambling, insensitive or irreverent material, slurs, catchphrases, expressions, lamentations, and or degradations that aren't suitable for young folk. Also, we'll be talking about the reefer. That wizard came from the moon. Welcome to Purple Dungeon Squid, the podcast for gamers that toke. If you love the green and you love the screen, then you're in the right place, friend, because we're here to shoot the breeze on some dank strains and some video games. This week on Purple Dungeon Squid, it's our 20th episode and we got some good timey stuff planned. Andy and Dan travel back through the ages recounting the 20 games that made them gamers. We'll also be settling in for a smoke sesh with our strain in our munchie of the week, so stick around for that, because it's going to be a good, good time. I'm your host, Andy, and with me as always, the one, the only, the very, very old, Dank Dan. Purple Dungeon Pod to Stargate 67 Alpha. Be advised, prior to Hyper Jump, we're carrying dangerous ordnance. What kind? The dankest kind. Ooh, dangerous dank ordinance. That's right. I think dangerous ordinance uh, is, is topping my list for purple dungeon squid custom strains. What do you think? Oh, I think you're you're right on the money with that. That thing's got great SEO. I like everything about it except maybe traveling cross border. That's one you're going to want to leave at home. <laughs> uh, bring the purple haze. Leave the dangerous leave ordinance. Leave the dangerous ordinance. Dangerous ordinance also sounds like slang for what happens after the Taco Bell stop. Dangerous ordinance would be my hype man, and I, I think he would do just a fantastic job. You know, uh, speaking of cross-border travel, if you believe what uh, uh, Governor Cuomo is saying in New York, we soon might be crossing state lines with herb but i don't want to i don't want to jinx it knock on a little bit of of woody wooderson on that oh, one knocking on woody wooderson uh, the best of ways welcome to the purple dungeon squid podcast guys if this is your first time tuning in this is indeed a podcast about weed and about video games um and both at the same time really and uh you know what you're joining us at an opportune time if this is your maiden voyage this is episode number 20 dank dan what do you think what do you think about I think them we've apples? made it I think I think we've hit the top. We've peaked. The only thing left to do now is retire. Yeah, it'll go us, Gretzky, Michael Jordan. That order. Hmm. Mm. I think Jordan Gretzky, but I'm uh, I'm on the same in the same same boat as you, my friend. I think this is uh, it's time to call mm-hmm. it quits. And on that note, thank you, friends, for being there with us. Signing off. Signing off. Permanently. Permanent. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy well uh in 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 lieu of that man i am having some real hard times over here so i've been missing the train a whole lot lately um some of you may mm-hmm. know I, I i take the train home from work every day and whatever has been happening wind storms acts of god whatever the situation may be been missing the train an awful lot and that leads to me sitting in the bar uh and having an after work drink and after work drinks like dan are you an after work drink man 
I I try not to because although I'd like to be an after work drink man, that also makes me an after work tubzo man. And uh, what'll happen is a beer happens, and then as soon as I hit uh, the maison, which is French for house, I uh, hit the couch and it's uh, Betty bye. Right, and you wake up at nine p.m. feeling like. You messed up somewhere along the line. Yeah, I don't know. I'm like, I'm experiencing. So, you know, I've gotten in the habit of this after work drink a couple times, a couple times a week. And it seems, it seems innocuous at best, right? You sit down, you have a drink. There's other people there. It's all very social. You're like, these people are doing it. I, I could probably get this done. Man, I am having the worst stomach aches on my way home from work. Like I get on the train and immediately my stomach's like, ah, oh, uh, you done fucked that one up, friend. And followed by this like just queasy, mildly drunk feeling that continues on for like 40 minutes. I just, it's just not doing it for me. After work drinkers, I don't get it. Something, something I know about you, Andy, is not a drinker. Yeah. Not a drinker. Fair enough. Fair enough. Usually I have to, I have to wrestle a beer into your hand, which probably is either the sign of a great friend or someone you need to cut out of your life. (laughs) Uh, Can it be both, Dan? Can it be both? I don't think so. I think in this case, it's mutually exclusive. Either you need a metal chair in a church basement or we need to move in together. Buddy, I never said that we could be exclusive, but you can keep asking. It's very flattering. Oh, I appreciate mm-hmm. that. Thank you. I will. But yeah, I mean, it, it just it brings it back for me the uh, the benefits of an after work toke because I've been I've been you know I don't smoke I don't don't smoke don't toke during uh, during work hours, but sometimes five five thirty p.m. rolls around and it's time for a little splifferoo to wash down the day. And I gotta say, like you know the the fun warmy feeling that I get um, slipping into my seat on the train and floating all the way home is is far preferable to the acid stomach tonic that uh, that you know ye old cocktail brings up inside of me so um, I've had a bad crown royal experience today I think this is uh, I think this is it signing off of the after work drink I think it's over yeah the thing about um, that particular beverage did you, did you have it mixed with a cola beverage I did so what you're dealing with is with a, a shock of high fructose corn syrup and, uh, you know, a hard liquor, which tends to irritate the stomach lining. So if, if you're not a guy that, that handles that well, and depending what you've eaten that day, uh, you know, that's a, that's a recipe for an inflamed gut. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it was falling on the back of a ginger salad. So I feel like, I feel like maybe that after work drink, uh, after work drink maybe was the wrong move. But speaking of ginger yeah, I salad. I think after on the back of a ginger salad, you're looking more at like a, a, a light Chardonnay there, <laughs> Bruce Tamlin. I'm looking for a, a lavender mule. That's what I'm looking for. Ooh. Ooh, spicy. Tasty. Yeah. What about you, Dan? What have you been up to, my friend? Well, I uh, I put my security clearance to use uh, this week, and uh, oh, I forgot you are of you a, are cleared to do things. Mm-hmm. I took a tour of uh, of a, a, a nuclear facility here in uh, in sunny Ontario, of which we have uh, many, actually. Truth be told, and uh, it was pretty neat. Um, I got to see some uh, turbine uh, maintenance today, and. Um, Got to uh, to inspect some of the systems and uh, get a walk of the place and get uh, tested for various kinds of uh, radiation, right? Uh, whether it be your alpha, your beta, or the coveted gamma. Ooh. Every ev- every girl wants to be one of the gamma girls, but uh, you know, fewer selected. Yeah, no doubt. And you know, if you spend enough time next to gamma radiation, soon you'll be a gamma girl too. 
Uh, it's going to happen. And something we all overlook is um, we was, I was talking to one of the rad techs today, and he, he was explaining to me how so many things in our houses are radioactive. We just don't think about them. So, um, Andy, do you have ceramic plates in your cupboard? Yep. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for the hesitation. It's great. Um, almost all ceramic um, has uranium in it. Oh. Uh, low levels of, of uranium. And if you put what's called a pancake scanner up to them, you can get upwards of 40,000 counts per minute, which is a lot of radiation. Um, but don't go throwing out your plates just yet. Uh, most of it is alpha and beta radiation, which is um, low penetrating radiation in, in the sense that if you put a pe- piece of paper between you and that plate, it blocks all the particles. Um, but if you do put the pancake scanner up to it, it does go crazy and you're like, oh, we're eating off this? So my, you know, the, the only advice I'd give you is don't eat any ceramic, like don't any, don't swallow it. Because once it's inside, then it's trouble. But on the outside, it, it, it penetrates uh, not even through your skin. Uh, so I'm drinking out of a ceramic cup as we, uh, or ceramic mug as we speak. I'm starting to feel a whole lot less comfortable. No, well, it, yeah, no, it doesn't, it doesn't irradiate the contents, no, nothing like that. Sure. No. I just, yeah, just don't, I, I guess don't sleep on a ceramic pillow. Yeah, that would seem <laughs> ill-advised. That would seem ill-advised. Um, like literally alpha particles don't go f- further than a centimeter. So you're, you're all right there. <laughs> Very good. Well, speaking of catching some rays, I've, uh, I've been playing a little Nailing bit of, it. not bad, been playing a little bit of Pokemon Ultra Sun this past week, which I'm feeling pretty catching some, some rays in the sunny province of Alola, where my, uh, where my four-year-old kid has taken a real shine to the game. Boy, it is, it is a nostalgic blast down the past to watch a child rediscover, or to watch a child discover Pokemon for the first time. It's, it's warming my age at heart. I'm feeling pretty good about it. The rediscovery is you rediscovering your childlike position. Yeah, well, it's cool because like, you know, and you can even look back at the Game Boy games of our youth. You know, you've got a lot of sprite work in there, right? You got a lot of um, symbolic uh, game elements that are giving you an idea of what your RPG character is trying to accomplish, but it's all done in a very symbolic way, right? That's just the way of the 2D RPGs that we grew up with. But now these RPGs are so, you know, 3D high fidelity narrative experiences. You've got a 3DS that's giving you what could very well be mistaken for a full like episode of an anime in your handheld device. It's like magic for a kid, right? They're basically watching a TV show and playing it at the same time. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm curious to know if the experience and the excitement, the level of excitement that I had for these games when I was a kid would be different if they were as high fidelity as they are now. Would it be the same? Would I be more pumped? Would my mind have been blown? It's interesting to think about. It's all, it's all relative. Like if you think back to popping a VHS set into the, uh, VHS player, the the VCR, you don't remember anything but the movie. Turtles uh, number two, let's say, The Secret of the Ooze, I don't remember it looking like uh, death warmed over. But if you pop that puppy in there now, like, it is grainy and horrible. Oh, yeah. But, you know, your brain just smooths all, all, all that over. Uh, and you don't really think about it until you see something really high resolution. Oh yeah, you go, that's magnificent. But uh, you know, I think it's all relative. So it is the high fidelity probably is the same ratio of uh, you know 
eye satisfaction as the Game Boy to the VHS or the Nintendo DS to the VHS. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I don't want to get too too hyper detailed on it, but it's like, it's almost the difference that you're talking about is between the fidelity of an old school movie and a movie you'd watch today, and, and which I, I totally agree with you, by the way. Like, I watched, I put in, of all movies, Richie Rich the other day. <laughs> So I'm oh yeah, awesome. a secret favorite yeah, of mine for, for sure, for sure. So I'm I'm watching Richie Rich for a few moments, and it's just god awful, right? You're you're talking about horrific, but you know when it comes to video games, so much of those early video games are just a totally different experience than what we're dealing with right now. You've just got, like I said, a sprite based, symbolism based game that's abstracting an activity as opposed to just a low fidelity version of what kids are doing today or what people are doing today, right? So it's it's neat to see that gaming is actually not 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 always, not generally, but in many cases, you take a Pokemon game from nineteen ninety nine and you take a Pokemon game from 2018, and while the core activities are relatively similar, the way that you accomplish them and the, the fidelity at which it's displayed to you is so different. Um, it's just neat to see, and I can think of a handful of different examples, but most of them don't go super well. Like take Mega Man, for example. Have you played any of the 3D Mega Mans? I haven't. I have not. Neither have I, but they look like abominations. <laughs> they look super yeah, bad. Yeah, and they don't, they don't review well either. Yeah, no, there's not a whole lot of people chomping at the bit to go out and Mega Man it up uh, in full 3D, so to speak. And, you know, it, it's telling because one of the actually one of the releases coming out this month is a Mega Man uh, Legacy Collection for the Switch. And uh, you'll notice uh, a notable lack of 3D, and I don't think it's because of the Switch can't handle it. They they offered to include it for free, and they said, uh, "No, thank you. I'll I'll keep my disc space." They tried to put it on the cartridge, but the Nintendo Switch just kept going up in a in a searing bolt of unholy flame. So I don't know. Spewed from whence it came. Mm, back across the immaterium. Oh, speaking of which, um, I had a so spring has sprung. I, I, I think, boy, that, that, that sounds like a winner's commercial, a JCPenney commercial, but spring has sprung, and I enjoyed a little palm leaf blunt on the riverbank this weekend, buddy. Did you get out, did you get out into the warm weather? Did you get any, uh, chuff any bones underneath the, the spring sum, uh, sunlight? Uh, I didn't find myself in delicate repose under any uh, fauna, but I did uh, have a couple uh, patio uh, tokes that were quite enjoyable. It, it goes by so quickly. This is the thing is I'm trying to trying to condition my mind that this phase of spring and summer, it's like a freaking lightning bolt, man. Like it's going to be gone. And so I'm trying to put together a little bucket list for all the places that I want to chow down on a blunt sometime over the next couple weeks because it really is weeks. You know, we're talking about like 10 weeks till we're in kind of the middle of summer situation, you know? This is the undoubtedly the best time, uh, if you ask me, you can sleep with the windows open. It's super sunny. And as you walk around, you feel that heat on your skin, but you're not sweltering. That's it. Uh, Ontario, for those that don't know, becomes a, a, a veritable mist-laden humidity hellscape um, from which there is little escape. So it's important to enjoy these days as they are fleeting as the smiles on our children's face as they age into adolescence. What on earth? <laughs> <laughs> that's okay, I'll, right I'll take well, i'll take that one there uh robert frost thank you for that um but you've thrown me off my game now my goodness it was so sentimental 
and so like mm, falsely sentimental that it was kind of a little chilling. But um, but I, so I'm sitting here putting together a little bucket list for all the places that I want to go and enjoy a joint or a blunt for the spring, specifically for the spring. Duck Pond is what I checked off this weekend. What? Duck Pond. That's it, man. Well, I was, Speaking of Robert Frost. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I, a friend and I, a friend and myself, um, this this friend of mine is is in the midst of, of launching a business, We're so he's they're friends. Yeah, he's dealing with no, uh, so he's dealing with no lack of uh, of red tape and and crazy stuff going on. And so we took a moment out of his busy day to to head on down to a slow moving river into a duck pond, and uh, and you know chow down on a little uh, little green, and it was a majestic experience. Something like wa- watching animals. After smoking has got to be one of the most like relaxing, mind soothing things. You know, you just you watch them in their way. Euphoric. Yeah, you watch them in their way, and you watch what they're doing, and they're they're so present, right? They're so about the yeah. need of the moment, and uh, so yeah, watching those ducks splash around in the pond, they're not worrying about contacting the CRA. <laughs> they're not. They're not. Uh, they're not worried about hitting quota at work. They're not worried about any of that stuff unshackled by the responsibilities of time and and the calendar yeah i uh i want to enjoy a joint my second second point on my bullet list was uh was in the twilight hour next to a live music venue i'm feeling like that's that's where where i want to be next um finally uh, are you writing a bob dylan song I, right now i don't know i just i'm getting i'm getting getting groovy with it i don't know i want to feeling it. i want to enjoy i want to enjoy a joint on the back of a of a moored sailboat in harbor <laughs> i'm feeling that also hey buddy hey buddy yeah the sailboat might be safe when it's moored in harbor but that fucker's meant to be out on the sea <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> You feel me? I feel you, Captain Dan. What about yourself, man? Okay. Couple bucket, couple bucket list spots for the spring. Uh, I mean, there's something special about uh, huffing a bone um, in the uh, gentle repose of the top of a like a, a large mountain, you know. And I, when I say mountain, we're talking Ontario, but you know, it's beautiful to to get up on a hike up to a vista, find yourself a nice tree, and uh, get it going up top. Because not only will the uh, beauty of nature be doubly potent on thine eyes, but the hike down is much, much easier than the hike up. So I don't recommend the pre-hike blitz for for myself. Um, There is a couple of rivers um, around here that it is totally valid to uh, find a friend, park their vehicle at the bottom, Drive your vehicle at the top, bust out a couple inner tubes, and go lazy style down that river. Um, there's one in Port Hope that I think we were both uh, familiar with, and uh, you can you got literally two hours of uh, river relaxation before you hit the the bottom. That's incredible. And that's plenty of time to get your to get your smoke on and to forget about every single other thing that you could possibly do and just let the the, the universe breathe happiness into your soul yeah that sounds amazing so you know i've done that at like a water park before they usually have the lazy river you get on a tube you mm-hmm. float around in a circle that's nice except that you're in the middle of a water park and there's nothing particular to look at except for you know the dude the urine next content to you. Yeah. is higher than you want it to be there's also just a lot of folks who's like by virtue of whatever's going on in their in their bottoms section are just losing their trunks and you know, I just mm-hmm. it's distracting because there's just a lot of folks losing the trunks and you're kind of averting your gaze all over the place and I imagine I imagine uh, you know a stalwart joint would not be uh, would not be paying me any favors in that moment 
you're trying to sell me right on right now that you're averting your gaze and I'm buying nothing. Um, speaking of, uh, undoubtedly at these water <laughs> parks, you always see a, 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 a man who's hairy with a large round stomach. Now, some people might not enjoy that, but I like to pretend that he's my own personal lazy river Buddha who's uh, you know bringing luck and happiness to everyone around him. And yes. that, that really sets it off for he's me. Your, he's your guru. Ignore the just don't let him get close enough for to smell what's happening. Yeah, ignore the flaming hot Cheetos in his hand. That is all wisdom. Nobody has Cheetos in the pool, Andy. Come on now, use your head. He does. He does. No, there's got to be. There's nothing more upsetting than like slightly wet hands gripping some sort of carbohydrate product. Yeah, let me bum you out for life. Wet Cheetos. Oh, the or oh, it's give me death. I had a friend who saw saw honey nut cheerios soft in the sink once and he's like i could never eat another cheerio again because the remembrance of that damp and soggy cheerio it would invade his mind every time he tried to have a crisp honey smack delight oh we're not sponsored by general mills what am i doing yeah well listen man i mean uh you're watching them disintegrate into unhappiness and upsetting yeah Ugh. and you can't even drink that milk failure. listen cereal milk is the best milk we can all agree on that it's good milk but once it's, it's a good once milk. it's polluted with the decaying body fiber of a honey nut cheerio that's no good anymore you know buddy i i am a man of honor and i've never left a cheerio behind right all right you don't do it sure well awesome <laughs> um, yeah, so Lazy River sounds good to me. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm feeling that. I feel like we have some strong choices here. I think that this needs to be. So here's the question, though. Do you bring a Game Boy? No. No, eh? <laughs> I mean, I want to say yes. It feels like in theme, but we we're, we got so much screen time in our yeah. in our lives. Maybe just take the opportunity to to let it go. Let let the let the world speak to you in a, in a different way. Open your heart to a different speed and just see how that hits you. I feel that. I mean, I think that there's something romantic about the idea of carting your, uh, carting your Game Boy Color up to the top of a mountain and, and sitting there and playing a little Dragon Warrior. When you say romantic, do you romantic mean with yourself. cheapening? Getting romantic with yourself. Getting romantic with yourself at the top of a mountain. I, I changed like a my boy. last. I changed my last answer to that thing. Yes, there you go. The one you just said. There you go. And um, speaking of nonsense, uh, now's a good time to bring up our sponsors. And guys, this is episode twenty of the Purple Dungeon Squid Podcast, which means that very soon we'll have some real folks sitting here in our sponsors chair, wishing us wishing us well from the sidelines. But for now, we want to honor. We want to honor the two stalwart members of our sponsorship community that have been there since episode one and episode minus 10 and all of the other mistakes and, uh, and, and, and you know, malfunctions. That would be Whedon Video Games. Whedon Video Games, mm-hmm. yep, we take off our hats to you, friends. You've been there through thick and thin, through thick clouds and, and, and backwash bong water. Bless you. Bless you. This episode of Purple Dungeon Squid is brought to you also by shutting the fuck up. Shutting the fuck up. It's better than you think. (laughs) Brought to you by Deadlifting Naked. Deadlifting Naked. When it's really important to work on that form. Brought to you by assassinating Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria. Because what's the worst that could happen? (laughs) (laughs) I believe they called in a world war. Brought to you by Load-Bearing Walls. 
Diane, I know you want a window from the kitchen to the study, but we'll be crushed to death. <laughs> and finally, brought to you by Rendered Whale Fat. New rendered whale fat bringing you supple cheeks top to bottom. Rendered whale fat. I feel like whale rinds, like you know, pork rinds. I feel like whale rinds could yep. be a good thing. I, if you ever find yourself uh, on the nose of a schooner uh, that's striding manfully through the waves of the northern Atlantic and you come upon a, a beluga whale and you have the chance to smell its breath as it crests the watery surface, I think you'll change your answer. Ah, yes. Indeed, indeed. If you want to actually sponsor the show or stride manfully into the ocean, feel free to email us at purpledungeonsquid at gmail.com. Until then, for a little while anyway, you'll have to put up with all of this nonsense. Chances are, I'll never stop. He'll never stop. Oh, Daniel, buddy, episode 20 feels like a real landmark. And I, uh, I, want, to, I want to take a minute thank the the good folks out there in uh, the Purple Dungeon squad who have stuck with us through thick and thin, through bad audio quality, through bad puns, through equally bad episodes. But um, I feel like we've really turned a corner these last couple. I feel like we're uh, we're venturing out into uncharted waters with a sound boat and just enough weed to get us blissed out for days. We've tested our moorings. We've shored up uh, the various hull fractures that have uh, have emerged, and we've mixed our metaphor between space and naval seacraft. <laughs> but you know, in the end, uh, you know, I I have to thank just um, you know, there's a group of people out there, and you guys know who you are, who are constantly giving us great feedback and uh, and uh, whispering sweet nothings into our ears. And uh, I couldn't be more thankful. So thanks for the folks that got onto the ground floor. And if this is your first episode, welcome. Yeah. We're going to have some fun. We're going to have a good time. And it's so true, man. Like, it's funny because so some behind the curtain shit. You know, you, you get into doing something like this and and it's, A, always a lot more work than you expected it was going to be. We're like, hey, we'll, just, uh, we'll just do a podcast. What do you think, Dan? We'll just get a podcast going. Yeah. Blast it off on my break at work. <laughs> it was, it was quite a thing, um, and you know, it's been, it's been like, it feels like a really long road to getting to episode twenty, which feels like still very early in the podcasting cycle. But you know, we've we've met a lot of really great folks along the way. Met a lot of folks who've really provided us with a lot of good good feedback and good encouragement. If you're one of those people, again, hit us up at purpledungeonsquid at gmail We're always looking for good feedback and listener questions and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think. I think it's appropriate to take a minute and say thank you to everybody for, you know, for being good listeners and good friends and, and in general, just uh, just helping us stick to this uh, <laughs> stick to this schedule in amidst the haze of uh, two folks who love a little bit of cannabis and some video games. Yeah, well said. Yeah. Damn and right. speaking of which, um, the video games part's an important element here. And so I thought it'd be or rather we thought it would be a, a good old time. To instead of doing the normal chatting about what games we've been playing over the past week, um, I, we wanted to do something special for episode 20. Isn't that right, Danny? Yeah, you know, we took a look at this, and there's something that got us here. And I think for anyone who uh, loves uh, video games like we do, that seed was planted early. And we wanted to speak to that a little bit. Yeah, seeds being planted early. That's what it's all about here. And in my therapy sessions, um, and so really, what you know, what we wanted to do is take twenty games that made us the gamers that we are. So we each put together our own top ten list, and uh, despite our best instructions, we had overlap on one of them. So you know, nineteen. I think that's very thematic for episode twenty, right? Number nineteen. 
Yeah, and I think maybe maybe I, we can pull one out at random just to hit into that 20 spot, and no one will see it coming, save for this forewarning now. Let's call it foreshadowing. Pull it out at random just to give uh, make an example of it, give the other ones in line a little yeah, bit of fear. I, I think this podcast, uh, other than planting early seeds, is about pulling it out at random. <laughs> uh, well brought to completion. Boy. Um how do we how do we salvage please it's challenging it's always a challenge somehow we always get there <laughs> yes sir um so you know i think without uh, without further ado let's just jump into it i've never i've never done a top 10 list before and they're always my favorite thing to listen no. to so hopefully we don't we don't butcher it with a cleaver and leave it out on the road for uh for the crows but um dan what do you think you want to go first do i want to go first what's your number 10 formative game the games that got you into gaming number 10 for you dan is you know, in no particular order are mine, and now I feel bad about that, but I'm going to have to slide right in there in, in position what you, number 10. No, no, no. Sorry, sorry. sorry. Well, hold the phone. Yep. We oh. specifically Ooh. talked yep. about particular orders. Did we? we? We talked extensively at length. I wrote a small note, and then I wrote a, a bibliography and an appendix, all of which said right. particular I, you know, There was a... You did email my secretary, you sent me an emblazoned plaque, and yet still, as the renegade of this podcast, I've I've bucked the trend, and in position number 10, you will find GoldenEye oh. for the Nintendo 64. Nice, GoldenEye for the Nintendo 64. Um, I cannot wait to hear about it. Try and do them in sequential order, but uh, go ahead and tell us about sequential, sequential order. Sequential order. <laughs> That's uh, that feels like uh, the way that drag queens come out. They come out in sequential order. Sequential order. Okay, go ahead. Give it to us. Goldeneye uh, from the N64. So, Goldeneye rumbled in to the console a stiff one year after its release, with you know other games sliding in uh, before it, but it it dashed them all aside um, with its you know unique gameplay. Uh, and it's it's wonderful for the time graphics. Sure, uh, Andy, did you get your hands on the on the Goldeneye cart um, Mi- with the N sixty four? I mean, maybe we were playing different games. Everyone's face looked like a hatchet, <laughs> so I don't know about wonderful graphics. But I didn't. I did I'm so enjoy. So shooting glad them. you brought up the faces because I'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, Goldeneye was a great one. One of my fondest memories is shooting off that lock on the damn level at Christmas. It felt like next level gaming. Right. Yeah. You know, it, you, you, and the first scene, you zoom in on a, like a triple 360 of James Bond, Pierce Brosnan's face. And, you know, you find yourself, um, and we're going to put in air quotes, sneaking <laughs> into the dam level. And I think really early on, this, the game sort of set itself apart because this is one of the first titles that I'm aware of that had area specific damage, mm. meaning that. If your aim was a little bit off and you shot the guy in the hand, he would be like, oh, my hand. You'd be shaking right. it. Um, I remember this. You know, so, you, right. So, you, early on, you're, you're going for the headshots. Um, and as you clear through the level, which has some pretty interesting um, sort of puzzle elements, you got to open up a gate and close this thing and uh, jump off this dam, you, you get, for the time, like a pretty cinematic experience yeah you're not wrong um, and it was all set to that that killer soundtrack yeah, 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 I got you, know, you. Tons of classic music that all captured that James Bond feeling, um, you know, with that the the classic sting of, you know, um, no, 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 
yeah, yeah. I got you. Uh, but while doing its own thing in all these other places, you know, plagued by a lot of things at the time that you saw in every game. There's some draw distance issues in some spots. And um, when things got really, really, really hectic, the game would start to really churn down. You, you set off like um, 4,000 proximity mines and use the rocket launcher. Bad news. <laughs> Bad news yeah, for that N64. Everything slows down. Yep. And you know, it's the design the design cycle to this one's pretty uh, interesting. It was originally being built on the SNES hardware. Um, they were building what? it uh, for, yeah, like when they were they were prototyping it, it was all being built on the SNES that hardware. Not that it was going to be released. That's incredible. What? That, that, yeah. Wild. And not only that, Wow. Well, uh, when they were initially building it, they didn't have a Nintendo 64 controller, which is bizarre because it feels like a game um, that was, you know, specifically designed with that. You know, you have the yellow arrow C button strafing that was so key to getting an advantage in, in multiplayer. Um, but they were actually using a modified Sega Saturn controller Why, as, what? as a stand-in. Why was Nintendo yeah. using a Sega Saturn controller as a stand The developers were. That's crazy. It was rare, right? right? So it's not Nintendo. It's the developer, um, you know. Oh, so that makes sense. They initially, they also had low expectations for this game because no movie licensed game had done very well at all. Right. Uh, you know, so it, it it actually, you know, wasn't seen to, to be a big player, um, you know, but it, it went to be the fourth top selling title on the console. That's pretty so wild. So things really really jumped up exactly the the game is also originally they were going to make it a side-scrolling wait for it platformer uh, that got scrapped pretty early and they they just opting for a on the rails th uh shooter but you know as we saw today but on the rails and you can kind of see that in the first level. You think about the dam level, it's kind of a straight line and you, you could see how maybe you would you know be guided through it like you're on a, a conveyor belt shooting guys as they popped out. Uh, thank the sweet Lord that they, they decided to you know pop that out and let you roam at, at your pleasure. Um, because that would have been a, a you know a, a different game at its core for sure. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I mean, Goldeneye. There, there's so many singular moments in that game, and most of them are a result of it being a semi on the rail shooter. For example, I'll always remember that one dude that you drop into at the beginning of the facility level, and he's like in that's he's right. in the stall. But he's just standing there. So I don't know. He got a text and he had to deal with something before he took care of business. <laughs> and you just. I picture him as a man horrified by the fact that he's put a dumper in his pants and he's not sure what to do about it yet. <laughs> it's that point where you're like examining your options and none of them are are good. He must go down in history as the most headshotted NPC a mob in any game. Oh yeah, hundred percent. That guy gets headshotted every time, and with glee too. And for some reason, you feel skillful doing it. You're like, I'm a spy. I'm a super spy. This man with the dookie in his pants, he's getting taken out execution style. Ten percent of the time, though, you'd shoot his hat off, and not and not That's get a headshot. True. Those like, hats oh, were super. You got lucky as, as as protective aids. I uh, I completely forgot about that. Right. So um. Early in this game's development, or even late in it, sorry, uh, uh, Miyamoto um, was worried that the game was too violent. And his suggestion, uh, you know, it's obviously come a long way to Bay uh, Bayonetta and Resident Evil, but his suggestion was that everyone that Bond shot in the game would be would go to the hospital and at the end of the game, there would be a montage of you shaking the hands of everybody you plugged. <laughs> 
that's the, that's the most <laughs> Nintendo thing I've ever heard. Isn't that that's great? Incredible. Um, there's, a, there's a big hug you know, session after Act Two, just before it gets hairy. Everyone hugs it out and remembers exactly what brought them there in the first place: the power of friendship. Sorry that I shot you in the head. I'm glad she's making a speedy recovery. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, along the lines of other stuff that was let on left on the cutting room floor, we have the Rumble Pack Reload, a rare pitch to Nintendo that every time you reload your weapon, you would do so by popping out and pushing back in your Rumble Pack. Uh, Nintendo went ahead and scrapped that immediately. Oh, it's a cool idea, um, though. You got to admit, in concept, it's a great one. The first three times. The first three. It's, it's, <laughs> and it's kind of like, it kind of tracks or foreshadows Nintendo's, their Nintendo being enamored with kind of inconvenient shit to do during a video game like you know yeah using the Wii remote as an example during uh during uh, Zelda Twilight Princess trying to aim your bow by pointing your remote at the TV it's like this this is really giving me a sensation of of action and of, of doing something physical to make this result happen but I'm here to play a video game not to do anything physical yeah isn't that true it's a weird blending um you know, speaking, you mentioned the faces earlier. The enemy faces are actually scans of the devs' faces. And at the beginning of the level's loads, five of the developers' faces get selected and painted on the enemy's faces, you know, in, in random order. Oh. It's ominous a little yeah. bit. I feel like it's a little ominous. Right. <laughs> it, I think it's an interesting decision to say, I want a likeness of me to be just ventilated thousands of times oh. you know on a digital landscape well um, immortalized in a decidedly unimmortal fashion right um so you know uh, goldeneye has a couple cheats in it and one of them is and when i'm talking about cheats i mean um concessions enemies can't see through windows uh, to give you the sort of vibe that you're sneaking up on them mm. but you can jump right up there and wave your gun around they're not concerned no they're not going to see that he's like he's on the He's on the other pane side of that pane of glass. Yeah. I'm sure I'll be fine. It's, uh, it's a um, thing. I mean, that game had some seriously iconic maps and also some seriously yeah. iconic multiplayer moments. And Proximity Mines is one of them. Um, the Temple is another one. Odd Job is the one that probably everyone remembers because you had your one like dick neighbor who insisted on being Odd Job every time. You know what? Odd Job is not that much of an advantage. It's not. Anything further than 10 feet. All those chest chest shots are now headshots. Well, this is what I'm saying. Um, like you know, everyone's always so going we, on about Oddjob being like oh, the one character that everyone played that was a decided advantage, and like they were still dicks for picking Oddjob because it insinuates that they're totally down with having with having a showdown with you where they have the edge. But it never really actually felt like an edge. Let them be Oddjob. Let them job it up. It's it's totally fine. And it's, speaking of the multiplayer, the multiplayer which consumed so many of um, you know my young teen hours, uh, was an afterthought, was not the main thrust of this me. game. And if you believe some of the stories was put in just for the developers to have a little bit of fun, um, you know, but in actuality is probably as good, if not better, than the single-player game, which is to saying something. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I don't know how well it would hold up today, but I would definitely be interested in trying it out again. And I'm sure it's one of those games that plenty of folks pull out after a time and give a go. I'm sure that it can't be particularly relevant in the uh, in the grand spectrum of multiplayer FPS games today, but it's definitely worth a nostalgic kick, I'd say. Well, it, it's set 
the pace for Halo four player to be a thing. And I would argue that perhaps uh, it wouldn't exist if, if that didn't precede it. Um, you know, this game also features a ton of unlockables, secret levels, unlockable characters, lockable cheats, all gained um, through the beating of levels to unlock higher difficulties um, within a time limit. And uh, I gotta say, I sunk a lot of hours unlocking every single um, uh, aspect of this game twice, because if you float back into our earlier episodes, you'll hear the story about uh, my school chum that borrowed my golden eye, knowing that his family was about to run away in the night. <laughs> now, uh, now that said, it's hard to be angry at him given his situation, sure. um, but uh, there was a little bit of ire. But uh, it mean, meant meant that I cleared that game uh, on the Disney. You, uh, yeah, you you mastered that one, no doubt. Um, cool. I'm going to jump into my number ten. And Dan, what I'll ask is that uh, take a take a peek through your list and maybe move them around a little bit in accordance to the level in which they've impacted your gaming life. Uh, no, sir. Okay, got you. Very good. Uh, we're not even going to pretend, eh? Not even going to be a thing. Nope. nope. All right. Well, Sorry, not even, no no artifice. I will, Sorry, I will sign off by saying you're the uh, the, the goddamn worst. Um, number 10 yep. for me in uh, in strict, chron- <laughs> strict, strict order of importance. <laughs> <laughs> and number 10 for me is Banjo-Kazooie. I know for a fact this isn't one of your uh, this isn't one of your favorites. I, I, so I gotta ask before I even go into it because I hazard a guess if you grew up in an era where the N sixty four was a thing, you probably played Banjo Kazooie. What is it you have against this game? It's not any good. Okay, that's that's just the war. Come on, come on. Can you come up with I mean, one relevant uh, fact or no? Just 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 straight. Oh, I mean, straight hyperbole. I can talk at length about why you're, the game you've selected is shitty. Um, the worlds feel empty and drawn up. Come um, on, with artifice. The characters are one dimensional, laughable, and totally forgettable. And the plot is non-existent as far as I can I can remember. Oh, good. Just, okay, so let's it, let's it, just unpack it, that. It did not it did not need to be played, made, or enjoyed, and it, it never really landed for oh, me. I got you. I can. And I can remember, tell. as you think about my stinging comments, you asked for this. I did ask for it. I mean, listen, there's no accounting for taste because let's let's walk through it a little bit here. Banjo Kazooie is one of the most charming 3D platformers of all time, and I would say um, one of the very few games to get 3D platforming right. You know, Banjo and uh, and Kazooie are this pair, this lovable pair of bear and bird that make their way with pith- with pithy comments towards each other that all hover around a PG rating um, through some very endearing, well thought out, puzzly, and also heavily moody environments. So you're talking about empty and lifeless. There are, uh, you know, you, you take you take anything from the first level, which is sort of a general, almost like your green hill zone from a Sonic. And that level injects a ton of interesting characters that you need to interact with to puzzle through and, and, and earn, um, puzzle pieces and, and save hidden Jinjos, which are the, you know, kind of one of the collectibles throughout the level that you have to, you have to collect to unlock things. The game had a level of goofiness as you go through the levels progressively. You've got everything from like a Gobi desert style level to um, a beautiful, magical, wonderful winter wonderland style level to, you know, a rusted boat dockyard to a spooky haunted house, all of which contained mind bending puzzles and secrets that if you weren't following a guide were extremely challenging to unlock. And so, you know, I look at you, I look at what you said, which is 
You're talking about level design that was empty and soulless. Well, hold that up to Mario 64, regarded by many as one of the best games of all time. And I would argue that the actual design of the levels greatly outpaces Mario, which has always been a little bit more of an abstract uh, in the way that it does its environments, always been a little bit more sterile. Banjo-Kazooie is like a homecoming party. And all of those levels are connected together by a series of small corridors that in and of themselves have their own challenges. And the characters, I mean, listen, let's be real, Mario and Luigi and the plot are not the pinnacle of character development and and plot. Like you're talking about Bowser steals Princess Peach in just about every single Mario game to date, and yet it's still an endearing formula. You know, Banjo-Kazooie is a, is a game about you know, solving some some puzzles and, and getting your way to an evil witch so you can bop her on the head and bounce, right? So I, I, I would have to say, sir, I don't think any of your points stand up. Well, I'm sorry, Andy. I, I, I sort of um, nodded off there. Uh, but I, you know, I think it's funny that um, we both our first games are made by the same studio, uh, both made by Rare. And like, I think it's funny how, you know, vastly they land differently for you and I. And, you know, I, it's clear to me and all, all my joking aside, because I've trashed this game pretty hard in this episode and last episode. But it's clear to me that this, some for some people, this game really landed and whatever it was trying to do, um, some people love it. It didn't it didn't work for me. None of it really took purchase, um, you know, but uh, I, I, I will acknowledge that perhaps it deserves on, uh, a space on your list. But I, I let this one float down river like the turd that it is mm-hmm. I, I mean all i could hear was wah, wah. everything that you're saying just makes just hits me on a blood boiling level that i want to let you know makes me hate you a little bit the truth is hard to hear sometimes the tr- especially when it comes from the lips of a burning evil person yes. with no heart there it is. who hates pokemon uh-huh. all right let's continue <laughs> here's what i like about banjo kazooie the world design was really strong whether you liked it or whether you didn't love it um there there's you take for example, that that winter level, and you look at some of the puzzles that are baked in, whether you like the veneer or not, they're both complex as well as approachable. So there's nothing arbitrary about the way that you had to go about achieving those puzzles. If you sat there and took a moment to look around in your environment and identify the places you needed to go, um, you, you could almost always overcome the the wall you'd inevitably bump into playing a puzzle game, right? Uh, I really appreciated that because in, a, in an era before I felt like spending any of my allowance money <laughs> on a strategy guide, it meant that I could progress through that game at a steady clip without getting stuck on anything for too long. Um, and the, the other thing to mention is that Banjo-Kazooie was an entirely new IP. There was no games previous. Um, you know, these, these two characters came out of nowhere and jumped into the 3D platforming world alongside Mario. And yet they felt immediately familiar. You were introduced to them in a way where um, those two characters, at least for me, gelled instantly. And so, yeah, I mean, that game, one of one of the first games on the platform that I beat was the game that inspired me to pick up the platform in the first place. And it holds a special place in my heart uh, because, you know, I have an ounce of, of good taste. Andy, did, did you beat Banjo-Kazooie? Sure did. Okay, I'm starting to get it a little bit more. It's one of the two games you've beaten. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, you're really on a you're really on a tear today, Dan. Well, just keep going, my friend. You'll have your comeuppance. I 
You know, it's funny because I know I, I've taken a peek at the rest of your list and I, I'm going to say that I, I agree with most of the other ones. So, you know, we, we tend to agree with each other and take the positive. So we should uh, make this one divergence pretty clear. I just, you know, you not liking Banjo-Kazooie just feels to me like just a stubborn insistence on taking a stance on this one because it's a charming game with some charming protagonists, with creative level design, with vastly diverse levels that have been created lovingly and painstakingly by a studio that you profess to love i just don't see what there is to not like about this game you know what andy every every studio is um granted at least one stinker um and uh while i'll say on one hand you've convinced me and this is a great game on the other hand it feels like the kind of game that was designed for somebody who's like had a boat accident and then part of their brain is no longer oxygenated and then it just sort of hits all the right buttons it's just like what's the kazooie listen to yourself i don't care listen to yourself talk like come on like it's funny you say that because yes, absolutely. Because I have to listen to the podcast, so definitely. Oh my god! It's like it's like you're just you're just you're driving over a you're driving over a, a series of rocks in your boat. The bottom is coming off long ago, and you're just stubbornly continuing on in that direction. Hey, no matter how I feel about Banjo Kazooie, I still love you, buddy. Yeah, well, the same cannot be said in reciprocation. <laughs> <laughs> so go ahead uh, to your uh, go um, ahead to your number nine or your right number along. two or your number one or whatever it is really go ahead let's please. call it uh let's call it entry delta um so for me coming in at number two is final final <laughs> coming in at number five <laughs> okay make it two, make it two. Why okay not? okay let me let me let me just shake it up we're coming back at your sketch i can't talk at your sketch style number nine final fantasy there we go we're getting somewhere we are this game caught me by surprise and i and i'll say this because you know i had heard the whispers from my uh playstation compatriots about this game about its grand nature it's spread across you know four discs or was it three i'm not sure sorry guys um and i think it was four discs was not a lot of discs i think it was four I was not let down when I when I um, struck a deal uh, with a pal to borrow his PlayStation and I rented Final Fantasy VII um, because it, it hit me in a way of an RPG never had. I didn't wake up in my comfy bed, um, you know, in a, a house at the edge of the village listening to birds chirp and the call of my mother to come into the kitchen for fresh pie. No, I uh, woke up to a dark techno landscape that was unknowingly at the brink of armageddon and i wasn't the valiant budding hero no i was a mercenary eco-terrorist on my way to blowing up a reactor that was damaging i'm gonna say the earth but you know whatever planet it is it, it is and while i found myself on this mission Although I was trying to stop the powerful from raiding the the Earth's energy, I was doing so by blowing up a building that was going to very much affect um, the poor people of Midgard. So you set up with this extremely morally gray situation, yeah. Um, that kind of continues, um, you know, through the through line of the game, which is steeped in mystery. And I, I have to say, 
This is one of those games that I didn't recall everything about it for two reasons. Um, it's extremely long, mm. and I was l- reaching a level of psychosis while I was playing it because I played and cleared this game in one 76-hour sitting. So it's all kind of blended together in like a sort of a brain mush um, for me. But reviewing the plot, this thing is convoluted, my man. And there's stuff that I missed, like Sephiroth isn't always Sephiroth. Sometimes it's Genova, a space alien that came down and killed all these Setars, which are like the gods of this planet, except for one, mm. which is Aerith. And I was like, hold on. Did that happen? I mean, listen, the the <laughs> the seemingly nonsensical random disregard for Banjo-Kazooie is all explained now. You were suffering from fucking brain damage. Andy, man, you gotta let it go, buddy. <laughs> we got a podcast <laughs> to run over here. And all truth, I, hey, I, I, hey. Just, to go, just to throw it back to your morally gray comment, it is interesting because they've set up kind of a Robin Hood style, um, a Robin Hood style tale here. You're playing the anti-hero, you're playing the, not the anti-hero necessarily, but you're playing the social justice warrior, kind of hell-bent on victory at all, at all oh. costs. Uh, and that's just not, it doesn't feel like that was really typical of the time, right? You're dealing with some potentially, you know, sensitive subject matter. It's not really the way that an RPG typically painted um, its protagonist in an era of, you know, protagonists that are benevolent and um, made of white light and butterflies, you know? You're so right. And along those lines, the characters that you run into all have these vastly different motivations as you get to know them. Some of them are trying to protect their their offspring and make the world a better better place. Uh, others are on a, a path to revenge. And still others are robot, robotic cats. Yes. Or uh, red genetically engineered tigers. Or men with, uh, with, with uh, octagonal hands. I mean, exactly. Um, and they're all coming together for uh, this one important thing, which is to, to sort of uh, throw the yoke of tyranny and, uh, you know, the uh, pillaging of, of the planet. And so, you know, it, it felt powerful. And the game is steeped in this deep sense of sadness and loss, um, which is, you know, no mistake because one of the game leads lost their mothers during the production and it influenced the the the, the big um, turn in this in this game that no one expects. So here comes the spoilers. If you haven't played Final Fantasy and you'd like to, skip ahead, you know, 25 seconds. But uh, the main healer, the, 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 the purest character is, is killed in her mission to pray for the holy spell to stop the big bad from... Uh, you know, devastating the planet. And it comes at the end of Act 1 out of nowhere. Yeah, it does. And des- decimates decimates the player. And like, decimates you specifically if you sunk most of your experience into, <laughs> into giving Aerith a little bit of a boost early on. Yeah, no kidding. And you can tell if you dig into the t- game code that this was not always the intention. Because for those of us that like to dig in and, and tool under the hood, you can bring Aerith back and resurrect her with a, a little bit of game sharking um, or a little bit of playing around there. And she will has lines in the game past that point. You're kidding me. She has, line, no, Dude, you, she has I, I have lines. No, she has lines of dialogue. I have to take off my hat to you because you you have thoroughly researched these games. This is fascinating to me. I had no idea. So you spent some time looking into this. So did you actually back in the day, um, sorry, was it Game Shark or Game Genie? I can't recall what it was for PlayStation. 
Now, this is one that I read about um, in one of, like, I usually, I used to get two separate and distinct gaming magazines. Oh, nice. <laughs> you know, de- delivered to my house. And this is something that I, I heard through Folk Legend um, because I had to return the PlayStation um, and then uh, go to a, a monastery in the mountains to reclaim my sanity. Because right. true story, if you play Final Fantasy for 76 hours, the hallucinations are palpable. Yes, exactly. You could It could lead you to strong, irrational behavior like hating on a perfectly innocent, beautiful easy, video game. Easy, um, easy. You're okay. <laughs> um, that said, after limit-breaking my brain... Um, you know, I, I did come across some some pretty funny stuff in the book art. In the original book art, it says on some of the pages on the inside, um, the, the one with the Mako cannon in it, it says, quote, someone get those guys that make cartridges a cigarette and a blindfold. I, it sounds so witty. As, I'm missing it. What's happening? As a dig. So the idea. So then the other quote on that page is... Uh, it references the fact if it were available on cartridges, it would cost $1,200. Oh. So both are references to the fact that on these four discs, uh, they put, you know, a, a massive game in. And, uh, you know, the idea right. that uh, that the Nintendo guys couldn't catch up. So the cigarette and the blindfold yes. is like getting sh- uh, shot by a firing squad. I like it. I like it. And I, I'm sorry for making you explain it. Um, yeah, it is. It is. Here's the thing. There was something about receiving or purchasing a game for the original PlayStation that came with those multiple discs that felt so badass. Like there's a physical manifestation of exactly how much content is here. You got Legend of the Dragoon, you got Final Fantasy VII, you got Metal Gear Solid, you got all of these games that come with multiple discs and it just felt like you were getting more value for money. It just felt like you were buying something epic. I feel like that that weightiness. Was Parasite Eve a multiple disc game? A Dino Crisis? I believe so. Parasite Eve was a good one. Um, I got actually a lot further in that game than you might expect, but it uh, it was uh, it was surprisingly compelling. Um, but yeah, I mean, Final Fantasy VII for me was a game where I never beat it, surprise, surprise, but I got about three discs through. Um, and I think the story was compelling enough to keep things going, but what was what was fascinating about that game was the next generation cutscenes that they kind of sprinkled in throughout. Because yeah, you're playing with this hybrid between 3D polygonal um, characters and sprites, right? That's that's kind of what it feels like. You're in just that step between you know your your Final Fantasy sprite and the 3D character, um, but the cutscenes themselves, playing it back in. 2007 just as I was starting university um, felt like I was looking at something that could have been from that era it was pretty pretty incredible yeah you said it I mean it was far and away the best visuals that you know we had seen in a full motion uh, video to that time to my memory and uh, the game leveraged it in all exactly the right points um, you know, and that continued right up into the uh, the the film um, Final Fantasy Advent Children, uh, which puts a another layer of polish onto that experience. And if you haven't seen it, just the visual experience is uh, it's awe inspiring. Yeah, nice, 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 nice. Um, my number nine. 
Never Winter Nights. So I don't want to go too deep on this one because I spoke about it at length, uh, I think, last episode. But Never Winter Nights was this game that caught me totally by surprise and that I initially regretted so heavily purchasing. It was a computer game with all the right notes on it. It was a computer RPG, which, given the fact that I was a diehard Baldur's Gate fan, immediately was an auto pickup, right? Um, It had some pretty swanky, minimalist cover art that breathed Forgotten Realms, which was my favorite setting at the time. Um, And it promised to be infinitely moddable and to have a system that effectively made it D&D in a box. And so it hit all those notes and it, it was exciting in and of its own right. And so I went and picked up the game. I was stoked to get it going. And what I found within the first like four hours of playing through the main campaign was that the main campaign was a dumpster fire. It was bad. It wasn't enjoyable. It wasn't fun to play. There were not a whole lot of story notes that made sense or or I found interesting and so I promptly shelved this game for a good amount of time the next time that I played it I actually repurchased the game because two more expansions had come out there was Shadows of Undertide and Shadows of the Underdark which added a ton of new campaign content but more importantly than that it also added a ton of additional content for the modding community and so Dan you said that you'd uh, have you played Neverwinter Nights before that's right I have okay so did you get into any of the mod stuff you know what? I, I picked up the Diamond Edition again recently, and um, there was like uh, reading the forums. There are some mods that are uh, recommended just to play the game in its in its best form. And the, and I just off memory, there's something about the Kingmaker or something like that that's supposed to make the game a ton more playable. And I I had a little bit of a challenge. I literally have the files on my computer, and I had a little bit of a challenge implementing them. So I unfortunately I, I sallied forth. But this is still on my to be played list. Well, so, you know, Neverwinter Nights as of today just received a newly remastered version, which now makes it available for Mac and PC, which is kind of cool. I mean, it's it's relevant for like the 1% of people that try and play video games on a Mac like myself. Not a ton of not a ton of sense there, but um, but you know, I mean, what's what's neat about Neverwinter Nights is because it's had this 15-year tenure, there are moments in time in which it was still as content heavy as it is today, except like 10 years ago when you didn't have a lot of games that were that content heavy, right? And even today mm-hmm. by today's mm-hmm. standards, it's so much content. I'll give you an example. Like early 2000s, when I bought this game for the second time, because uh, I had a re- I had lost the original con or <laughs> the original copy, um, and a friend came over, and we were at I think we went down to Walmart or something like that, looking for a for a, a game we could play on the local area network, right? Um, and so you know we had two computers set up, and I was looking at I can't remember if it was Diablo two or whatever. We ended up picking up Neverwinter Nights. Fast forward, this was probably mid-December when this friend of mine came over just after the uh, the end of our school break, or sorry, the beginning of our school break. Fast forward to like over Christmas holidays, there was family flying in, they were coming and staying with us, they were bringing gifts and merriment and messages of hope and joy, and I had locked myself away in the bedroom for the entire Christmas season, adamantly refusing to leave for almost any reason, just so that I could continue playing all of this Um, community-based content. Almost none of my time with this game was spent with the game that the developers created. It was spent with the stories and adventures that, um, that, you know, players had gone ahead and created with the tools that the, the game creators had given them, which 
by my assessment, were way better than what I had gotten out of the box. And so myself and this friend played through hours and hours and hours of this game, um, chowing through modules, rolling up new characters, playing as thieves or clerics or whatever. And it was like to this day, probably one of my fondest gaming memories. Uh, and that's why I'm still so fond of the game today. It's, yeah, but it's not just kind of this this retrospective look at it that makes it so special. You know, it's still got so much content and there's so much online content that's still going on in the form of servers, persistent servers that people have up that you can jump in and you can play around on and they function as sort of like a, a like a, a light MMO kind of thing. So it's it's definitely neat. Dan, I think I think this is one of those games that we could we yeah. could look at, you know, popping in the tray and plowing through over a 12-hour period on the weekend um, and documenting every minute of it because it's got, it's got that vibe to it. I look forward to that day. And can I ask you, um, the friend, was it the one that I hate or the one that I really like? The one you like? really like. Nice, nice. Yeah. <laughs> shout, out, shout out to you. Shout out to you, friend. Shout out to you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, so it still fills me with the warm and fuzzy. That other guy owes me 300 he bucks. He does owe you a good chunk of money. <laughs> And probably, uh, you know, a, a good old punch in the noggin. But hey, mm-hmm, such is mm-hmm. the such is the fickleness. I'm more of a tummy puncher. You know what I mean? Are you? Just a punch, a stern punch in the stomach. Yeah. I don't know from yeah. that uh, from that earlier banjo kazooie, um, you know, uh, affliction. Did I you, felt like I got feel, punched in the nose and spit in the eyes, <laughs> and then you ripped out it's part of my childhood thing, and drove know? over in, in an old rusty wagon. It knocks the wind out of you, but it's not going to hurt my hand. And I mean, no, concu- no one got a concussion from a punch in the tummy. You know, what I, I feel mean? you. I feel you. Um, you know, and, and I will preserve this. I'm trying to right now rebuild the walls of <laughs> a walls of good social grace around my memories of Banjo Kazooie, so that I can stop the vengeance. But it's just coming out of me so quickly, Dan. Little did I know that it was one negative game review away from just crumble. <laughs> not just any negative game review, but the Sacred Temple. Oh, there's like a it's banjo is kazooie they're jumping on things their friendship is so pure in your mind i was banjo and you were kazooie. in my mind you have always been the evil witch gruntilda and you will continue to be until time has come to an end <laughs> gruntilda, gruntilda. Mm. i have upsetting gastrointestinal issues mm. so neverwinter nights is indeed D in a box if you have any interest in that it's worth a play wonderful andy for my number seven, number eight, which I probably that's, should have made Final Fantasy number seven, eight. but f- you're on number eight. Am I? You're on number eight. <laughs> it's all good for your number eight. Oh, mm, this is podcast is one of my favorites. For number eight, I have written down here in crayon, <laughs> Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Turtles in Time. Nice, nice. <laughs> Andy. <laughs> okay, let me roll that back. Awesome. Cowabunga. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking eat a turtley dick. Uh, Four player multi-tap action. Uh, uh, straight up, though, like Ninja Turtles arcade style is, is also one of my favorite gaming memories. I tended to do it at the arcade. I never had a console version. Um, is this one for the Genesis? 
No, and you're a bad person. Um, Super Nintendo, actually, to be to be honest with you, this re- re- released on many, many, many consoles. And one of the biggest differences between all the consoles, and there's a lot of little differences, but on the opening scene, you could tell um, which features uh, Krang inside his robot body, uh, stealing the Statue of Liberty. Um, the one of the ways you could tell what edition you were playing is um, how uh, busty April O'Neil. Oh, was. there you go. The, the so, Nintendo um, folks were bustier or less busty. There was like a good overall girth, right. but when you went to the when you went to the Sega version, which graphics were worse, there was some strong cleavage uh, imp- implications. Oh, 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 I see. So Sega Genesis went all the way with the cleavage. Nintendo reined it in a bit, kept they, it kept it respectable. They gave her a little something extra. So this game, th- the thing with the, the Ninja Turtle games is, on the consoles, they just kept getting better and better. I mean, the very first Nintendo game, if you recall, um, had this weird thing where the turtles were there, the sewers were there, the weapons were there, Splinter and April were there. The enemies were strangely disconnected from anything close to a Ninja Turtle enemy. Um, You had flaming guys, just guys comprised entirely of fire. fire. Guys. Um, you had uh, robots that looked like keys that dropped part of their keys on your head. Key fighters. Um, there was chainsaw men. There was lots of Buzz things dudes. that didn't make any sense on this, on this bad boy. Mm. Um, now, you know, you step forward and, uh, you know, the, 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 the next games in the series made more and more sense. They were multiplayer side-scrolling beat-em-ups. But Turtles in Time was something that showed up in the arcade. And then when it showed up on the console... They were so closely associated, the experience, that it was one of the first games that I felt like, oh, I have the arcade in my house. Oh, nice. Yeah, I mean, and you know what? I seem to recall you and I did a 24-hour um, video game marathon for, uh, for Sick Kids Hospital three, four, maybe five years ago. And I feel like mm-hmm. you busted this guy out. I feel like we had Turtles in Time. And I have to agree exactly. Like, my experience of playing Ninja Turtles at the arcade, there was a place called Pizzaville. I don't know if you remember Pizzaville, mm-hmm. next to the old grocery store, Independent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Pizzaville... The one that burned down? Yeah, the one that, the one that air quotes, burnt down. A little bit of, uh, <laughs> yeah, a little bit of uh, fun there, but... Um, Pizzaville was a place for for kids, right? You know, I mean, you you didn't really want to go there because it was a lot of really young kids and they were all playing skee ball or whatever. It just wasn't the spot for me and my for me and my bros when uh, when that that era was around. However, they did have a I believe it was Turtles in Time machine set up in the corner, and so we would walk into Pizzaville, try and remain cool because there were so many small children around. We were, we tried to maintain our posture by grabbing a box of pizza and sitting at that machine for hours. And we got to the point where we got so on such good terms with the owner that he would just come over and, and open up the inside of the case and give us access to the reset button. So if we had run out of quarters, we could stay for a couple more hours as long as we were eating pizza, hitting that reset button and continuing to try out um, you know, our skills against the game. And we we actually the holy grail, the holy grail, the open arcade, the machine. open arcade machine, and we beat the game. We, that was that was one of the highlights of my young self is beating the game, pizza in hand, victory high five, all the way on outside into the parking lot where my mom had been waiting for like an hour and a half in our station wagon, uh, and was super unhappy about it. Uh, it's not the first or the last time I'll say this. 
your poor mother. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but she was like, it's, it was an era before cell phones. So like I kept on running out and saying just, just five more minutes, mom. And, and like, God bless her for not rolling in, grabbing me by the ear and throwing me on the roof rack to get me home. Right. Like, like bless you. What, what an angel. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that feeling got replicated uh, in your living room. And this game has got everything. Great sound effects, turtles uh, making exclamations such as pizza time, cowabunga, uh, shell shock, all the greatest moments. And it's a game that sticks to um, all the characters that you're familiar with, with the comic, comic, of course, the comic, but the, the cartoon more aptly right. so you got baxter stockman you got a cartoon perfect shredder that you have at least three showdowns you have a a krang fight where he's you know inside the body outside the body you got the technodrome you got cowboy or not cowboy bebop bebop and rocksteady on a pirate ship in the 1600s um you have slash the ancient uh ninja turtle and you know the list goes on and on and the, the levels are all interesting. They, they take you across time, as the name suggests. Um, and this, this game is probably the best beat-em-up for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System and, uh, and gets my vote every single time. Right. And I'm, I'm on the, like, this is, this is one of those games I'd love to see played again. Uh, co-op, uh, shotgun. Who's the orange guy? Mike Leonardo? Michelangelo? Michelangelo, you fucking zealot. He had size or was it nunchucks? That's Raphael. You're all over the shop. Do you want dark and brooding? Do you want party time? Do you want the leader? Or do you want Donatello, who, by their own admission, does machines? Who, uh, who's the one with the rail gun? So number eight <laughs> that, for me is Halo. Halo Combat Evolved. And this is one of the first games I can remember distinctly never playing sober. So this is around that time where I discovered the, uh, the Regal Herb. And... Um, Halo is the quintessential sleepover game. It is the quintessential game of my teenage years. It's the game that you, and it didn't matter if you were hanging out with like the awful neighbor kid, if you were hanging out with you know your, your childhood buddies who moved away to a different town and came into town every so often to get up to some mayhem. It didn't matter if you were hanging out with the dudes you were in a air quotes band with. All of those people were down to play some Halo, and they were down to play some Halo for like 15 hours on the weekend. Friday night, you fired up Halo, and when mom came to pick you up on Sunday morning, you were both super tired, (laughs) super grumpy, and had played to the utmost maximum of your stoned brain's capacity. Did you have a similar experience? So so true. This is the first game that literally our local posse formed a clan around oh yeah like like they they started playing under their their clan tag their uh, the order of the friends started to shake out into who is the best at halo so like your squad's alpha fell down in uh its order because there was also always a leader to your you know your friend group especially among guys he sunk down because his 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 no scopes were just non-present and suddenly mike is coming to the top of the pack finally it's mike's Mike's time. time mike gets to eat first Mike's the one who gets to, uh, you know, gets to have first dibs on the sleeping bags when it comes time to go to bed. Just best seat on the couch, right? Yeah. Oh, Mike's now on second controller. Look out. Ooh. Sorry, Clay. <laughs> he doesn't have to down play to with the Mad free. Cats anymore. He's playing with the OG Xbox controller. Um, yeah, no, it's it, 
there's so many memories in Halo that uh, all of them are, are just a little bit too insider, you know, a little bit too personal to, to go into because there's, there's so many laughs that I think everybody had as a teenager playing Halo. All, there's also bitter rivalries that came out of it. There's, you know, came to blows every now and again, depending, depending on how late it was and how much alcohol was involved. So with Halo, you know, there, there's a couple things that stand out for me that are probably more general. Blood Gulch. I think we can all uh, we can all agree Blood Gulch was badass. One of the best co-op maps ever made, in my humble opinion. Um, just enough space for sniper rifles to be a thing and vehicles to be fun, but also just enough close combat for you to get out your shotguns, etc. It was uh, it was a real beauty. Um, sticky grenades. Is there anything more demoralizing than getting stuck with a grenade and having to walk around for like two and a half seconds before exploding? I don't think so. Uh, the exclamation, I stuck you, is a deep, deeply affecting one. Yeah. Oh, he stuck him. That's, you know, that's, that's like, that's what happened every 30 minutes, one of those chants. Um, you got the, you got the ghosts. I, I know, I'm not misremembering that name, right? The purple, the purple. You see, the thing is, we all called it the purple boat in my, in my group. It was called the purple boat. Wraiths? Wraiths, excuse Are me. Are they called Maybe wraiths? ghosts, maybe wraiths, whatever, but... Uh, no, I think you might be right. I'm not going to weigh on this because I'm almost undoubtedly wrong. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's all right. Um, it's not the first time in this list that you've been woefully you're, incorrect. Hey, hey, um, hey, hey, it's okay. Hey, you're okay, take man. Take me down a notch. Take it's me down right. a notch. Uh, I'm going to need a fucking Valium. <laughs> Goddamn Banjo-Kazooie thing is hitting me at my heart. We do not endorse no, drug use none on of this that. podcast. No, I, no, pills. Forget that stuff. Get it out of here. Um but there's something uniquely satisfying about mowing someone down with that with that ghost wraith, whatever it was called. You know, you just you're, you're walking, you're doing your business, and all of a sudden, bam, you're out like Emerald. You know, so that was uh, that was that was probably those three things were probably the triumvirate of what I think about with Halo outside of the co-op. Now, did you play through the co-op campaign with a friend? Yeah, absolutely, buddy. Legendary status. Yeah, you started off as friends, and in the end, you were brothers. You know what I mean? That's you get right. through legendary. You're plowing through the ah, oh, geez, what the name? What's the name? The 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 hot? No, not the hive. Now I'm thinking destiny. Um, the the you know the coven? No, covenant? Co not the covenant. The uh, what were the what were the like the, the hive? It wasn't the hive. I'm telling you, what was it? Now yeah. this is this is podcast. Pretty sure it was the hive. Halo but. enemies wasn't the hive. Survey says it was. Come on. Halo horde enemies. I really need to know the flow, the the flood. The flood. That was it. There you go. Not the flow. <laughs> the flow is like We're really coming across as experts yeah, in this particular. The segment. flow is your your favorite '90s R&B artist. Um, but yeah, the flood. Those guys on legendary difficulty were murderous, just everywhere and extremely hard to take down. I don't know what made this game great. I will say is that it was an order of magnitude more tight in terms of gunplay and in terms of movement than any FPS had ever been before it. It elevated the tightness factor to such a degree that you were functionally playing a different kind of game. It wasn't just a better FPS. It was a totally different experience. And you still have, you know, remnants of that in today's conversations about video games like Destiny, for example. When it first came out, you know, there was a throwback to what, Bungie originally had done with Halo in terms of making an experience where the guns felt satisfying, where the gunplay felt intuitive, felt accessible, felt um, just satisfying. You know, it was the apple of gunplay. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I do. Yeah, so Halo. Definitely streamlined. There, there was levels that got banned in multiplayer because some of the guys that I played with determined that they could shoot the rocket launcher, bounce it off the wall, and make it land on them from halfway across the map. And so that that's when that particular map got exiled. Well, there's a level of exposure that any game can have to the point where you've got a player base that's so voraciously consuming it these little idiosyncrasies that you couldn't get out of a focus group or a testing group playing your game start to emerge, right? You're mastering the game systems to such a level that stuff like that is possible. That's the marker of a good game that's been played so many times that it starts to become broken under its own rules, which is amazing. Speaking of, there was a level of Scorched Earth that happened um, when in GoldenEye, multiplayer we discovered that you could destroy the body armor past a point that it would never respawn again wow so you you kill one of the body armor locations and then camp the other one (laughs) and then you get you get like such a punch in the arm incredible especially because it was all mostly local multiplayer at that that era um yeah it's you're, you're you're not like getting screamed at from some tweaker over over the interwebs about your mother you're getting punched squarely in the shoulder by your older cousin Stuart. yeah the the trash talk can only hit a certain uh point because you, there are physical ramifications from both uh, your co-players and parental units that are hovering at some place that you can only take it to a certain altitude before somebody charges you with a hate crime. Well, I mean, like, and there's there's so much violence that comes out of playing local first player um, shooters in that when, when you suspect that someone is screen watching you, the the anger, the 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 just desire to inflict harm. I don't know that you get to, to levels that hot in today's climate because someone's watching you. You've got a carefully concealed plan of approach or you're sniping from just, just the right spot and, you know, whatever. Your buddy Dan takes a look over at your screen and summarily comes up and executes you from behind with a well-placed rifle smash. Uh, not, not much more infuriating than that. Oh, I'm always watching your screen. That's part of the meta. Like the we went past the oh, point you're of that don't guy. look at my screen. Oh man. We no, we all we all went past the point of don't look at my screen to that's part of the strategy because you can't be looking at their screen and your screen at the same time. You're dividing your focus, which can be your downfall because there's four guys going at the same time. So one of the strategies is camping's right off the table. You can't camp in Malt in, in Goldeneye. You have to be on the move at such a speed an angle that if someone looks at your screen, it's difficult to tell where you are. And, you know, uh, GoldenEye is really great for this because the textures are, you know, everywhere that are very similar. True. So if you devote too much time to trying to determine uh, your your co-players' locations, at best you're going to get a sense of it. And if you spend too much time, you're going to get ganked. So it became part of, of the strategy because it, it, at one point it became impossible. You can't we're all looking at the screen, same screen. Let's stop pretending that we're looking at different screens. It's one screen divided into four. Yeah. So you just got to embrace yeah, it. Yeah, it's unholy talk right there. We actually went so far as to grab like a pizza box, tape it to the middle of the screen, and throw a blanket over top. <laughs> so I remember we had a bunk bed. My buddy was up top on the top bunk. I was on the bottom bunk. Pizza box separating both of us. Blanket keeping us cordoned into our own location. And we're playing Red Faction like that for like 12 hours. It got hot. <laughs> it got stinky it everything smelled like pizza and flatulence but by golly we were playing the game right 
I mean, I mean, that's Sobby Sally talk, you know? When you got four guys playing Goldeneye, not separating the screens just means that everybody is constantly attracted to everybody else's position. It just turns up the intensity. It's a better game. I see. Got you. Well... Uh, looks like you're predestined to folly this podcast. That's okay. I mean, we all have to. We all have our thing. Um, number that was my number eight. What about your number seven, my friend? You're about to do my. You're about to do my number seven. So <laughs> my number seven coming in at num- El Numero set is the great, the holy, the ever lofted EverQuest. Oh, golf clap. Now um, EverQuest. For those of you that may not know. Um, if you're sitting down to play Guild Wars or World of Warcraft or any MMO, this is the granddaddy of every MMO to come after mm-hmm. it. Um, EverQuest established the do's and more importantly, the don'ts of almost every MMO to follow. And, you know, it got so many things right. This game is even at the first launch is huge. Um, you know, the world is gigantic, the zones are vast, and beg to be an ex- be explored, and uh, well, that's only punctuated by the fact that there is no in-game map oh. of any kind. There sure isn't, and there's not a whole lot of in-game no. instruction on how to do anything at all, <laughs> no. which is amazing. Sandbox, sandbox, and, and it's, the game is, somebody looked at uh, MUDs. If you're familiar with what a mud oh, yeah. is, um, I think I even forget what it stands for. Is mud stand for multiplayer unified dungeon? Anyway, it's literally something you dial up to with your modem to a BBS. So it's you're not dialing in the internet; you're dialing to a bulletin board's modem, where um, this this modem or multiple modems is coordinating different players that are playing text-based adventures that you can sort of overlap with each mm-hmm. other. You know, fast forward that. To, to EverQuest, which takes the bare bones of D&D and uh, puts it into a graphical world that's sort of a shared space, which at the time was mind-blowing. The only thing that was even close to it, I guess, was be RuneScape, which, you know, I didn't have a lot of time in. But, uh, you know, what EverQuest does is right from the beginning, the first load screen, you're greeted with this unforgettable music. Um, For anyone who's played it, it'll be nostalgic till the day you die and beautiful, like, a jaw-opening art. Now, the game, the game's graphics don't replicate that, but it does have its own sort of um, quaintness. But you're, you're on the character loading screen. You are greeted immediately by twelve playable races and fourteen different classes, uh, which is a huge range of things to pick from. You know, uh, most MMOs give you half that. Um, and was it, sorry, was that was that at launch? Twelve playable races and fourteen classes, or is that yes, after like the thousand expansions? No, sir. At launch. You're kidding. At launch. I, I did not. not play at launch, um, and that is super impressive. It's really, it's really fantastic. Especially because each so one of those had their, they each had their own starting zone, if I'm right. You're correct. Well, some of them share starting zones, or oh, you know, okay. humans get a couple different options. But sure. Um, and so after you've picked the prettiest face and picked your favorite hair color and decided how tall you're going to be, um, the game goes cool, cool, cool. Now pick your stats. Oh. You know, it had the nor- the standard D&D stat block. And this is a game that, in many ways, if you build your character wrong 40 hours into the game, you realize, like, oh, shit, my warrior does not need 50 points into charisma. I'm going to have to roll this back. And, you know, there the game would let you play a gnome warrior 
which, you know, has 50 points less of strength than, say, a Troll Warrior, and, you know, was in many ways unplayable, especially in the early game where gear didn't have stat boosts until about level 40. Uh, after that, it would also say, cool, dude, um, what what god do you want to follow? <laughs> and, and had you pick a god, and, and at the time... Uh, I was like, no problem. Um, I I think one of these evil gods sounds awesome. I'm gonna be be the evil follower, and then found that the paladin in town immediately attacked and killed me every time. You know what I mean? Every time I was like, oh, oh, this has an impact. So you know, went back and, and picked a, a better god. Um, you know, but you're launched into this huge world that begs to be explored. Um, with like like Andy was mentioning, almost no instruction other than some you know very loose quests and when i say quests i mean like a guy tells you to go do a thing and you better have written it down because andy is there a quest log uh no no sir no nine no quest dude i just i have to hone in on this really quickly because this is the this is the and for for all it's worth today's mmos are way easier to play they're way more accessible and there's a lot of good to be said about that but EverQuest and that generation of MMOs having minimal access to information is what made them so damn exciting because you're not just mastering the right. game and its mechanics. You're literally mastering your game through the knowledge of the game itself. And it was at a time That's where right. the internet couldn't answer every small mundane question. Yeah, you could probably, you know, rustle up some loosely drawn MS Paint abstract maps of the zones. Maps. Yep. You could yep. probably yep. get there. It would take you like maybe 45 minutes to download one on your 56K connection. But you're definitely not, you know, going to Wowhead and Googling the quest that you're on and getting, you know, coordinates to go and jump in or, or downloading an app or anything like that. No, you're, you've got a pad of paper next to your computer and you're writing down what you're dealing with right now and you know you may get that accomplished or you may spend six hours role playing with a brownie in the forest who the hell knows and it's so true and it it forced you to do something that actually gets overlooked in today's mmos very often is you interacted with the community sure in 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 a myriad of ways you know you you uh, shouted in the zone to to ask questions and that people would respond you know you would say you know who all and then it would tell you everyone in the zone and you'd reach out to people and form groups and there there was this this feeling that the world had secrets mm. everywhere well, it did. and it was up up to you to discover them and there was such a feeling of satisfaction like you said gathering all this secret knowledge like um, one of my little secret pieces of knowledge is one of the main cities is called Quainos. Mm-hmm. Well, Quainos is Sony EQ backwards. No, right, like the 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 two owners, uh, the the owner in the game, Sony EQ. Wow, um, that's incredible. I had no no <laughs> clue about that. Also, all the ghosts in the game say crazy stuff, or they the most disturbing sounds. These verbal. Um, uh, puzzles well if you reverse the audio files and slow them down half speed they're all saying real stuff that's amazing and some of it's ridiculous and some of it's haunting and some of it's p- a pizza order and you know just so the game at all levels um had secrets laden into it 
And um, such a spirit of adventuring there. There's just a spirit of like, Absolutely. they're pioneering a space online. They're getting in there. They're doing some things that make sense and are regimented and based on logic and systems. And they're doing some shit just because they want to see what happens. And you That's were talking right. about MUDs, by the way, I Googled it. It's multi-user dungeon. Uh, and I think we both, or maybe we all played quite a few of those back in the late nineties. But, um, the idea that you had to say text stuff to NPCs to initiate dialogue and quests was so interesting because yeah, you could get away with just typing the word, but you could also sit there and type out an actual sentence. And in many cases, it was often easier to do that, which gave you just this like sense of ownership over the words that your, your avatar, your character was saying, right? It's just, it was a, it's a neat, it's a neat hybrid of ideas and stuff coming out of the tabletop world and that role-playing era of Gygaxian Dungeons and Dragons and like, you know, the modern MMO. It's such a great little junction of time. Now, that's so true. And I, I just want to touch on a couple um, quick things that are unique to this game. Um, punishing death with experience loss and if you die you could have died halfway across the world and ha and when you are resurrected you have to get your items go back to your body which because the fact that you died there means it's a dangerous spot uh you have to get back there to loot your corpse which after a certain period of time will decompose and be gone bye bye by based on your level so the lower level you are the, the shorter that it exists for and let it can take over an hour of real time to get through this world um so you know you you can it can be quite an undertaking um on top of that that meant that if things were getting bad in a fight you found yourself running to the safest place to die Oh, and also bringing like half the zone worth of aggressive monsters with you who would likely be killing other players along the way. So you're like, oh, I'm yes. backing out of this. And you now you've got a mob train behind you where you've got your lowly level 15 wandering through the forest, subsequently getting mauled by demons and ghosts. To the point where you, um, as you're running to the, the zone edge, which is where the one level turns into the next level, the geographic area, with this huge train of baddies, because once you hit that loading wall, you're gone, but anyone else that's on that path, suddenly that knoll's like, hey, what's your name? <laughs> and you're like, uh, can we pretend like you didn't see me? Like, you're like, don't worry, there's two of us. Meanwhile, the two other guys, the monks with you are, have feigned to death already, and you're like, good. Yep. They're already gone. Pretty good. Um, you know, on, on top of that, a couple of things. The game is deeply racist. If you're the lizard people, everybody hates you. Um, it just uh, embraces that. Another ask, uh, element of this game is a lot of the, the, the monsters that are key to certain quests are on a spawn timer, and there are no instances. The world is the world is the world. So, you know, some of the guys that are uh, key to quests will die and then they don't come back for eight days and they're or they're wandering mobs. So, um, you know, uh, quite a scarcity there. The game also had epic quests. And when I say epic, forget all every other epic quest you'd ever imagine. Every class has an epic quest that would lead to a very unique weapon, ones that stayed relevant right up until recent expansions, uh, flaming swords and 
um, you know, a two-handed sword that turns into two smaller swords and all kinds of interesting, fascinating stuff with particle effects, which was a big deal at the time. And you became a kind of, uh, you know, archaeologist slash, um, you know, uh, homesian detective as you talk to people and trying to an- unravel what they're saying and where they needed to you to go and it was a ton of guesswork with some of them having literally nearly a hundred steps in the quest and you know part of them involving killing a raid boss that might drop a thing these were truly epic quests so um they were sort of these weapons when gained were held aloft and in my time, uh, I, I came to know one fellow who I'm still in touch with, who between him and his wife, they have one of everything Oh, in the sense of one of every class they still play. And they have the epic for every class on the server. <laughs> they may have, um, they may have lost repre- many years of their lives. <laughs> they may not and, have and much I of have anything say, else, but they do have one of when everything. I, when I started to make this list, EverQuest is one that popped up for me. And I, as I retaught myself the game, it was like I was opening this vault in my brain where I put all this EverQuest knowledge and then closed it and then turned the light off never to come down again because there's a reason why this game is called EverCrack and EverGrind because it's extremely addictive. It will soak up so much of your time. <laughs> and people that kick the habit, they liken it to smoking or you know something really serious. And on the front of my vault, what it says is the command slash played and then 20 days. Ooh. And that's that's what really told me that I need to take a step back because when I hit slash played, it shows you all the time that you you put in the game actually logged on and playing. When I went slash played and it said 20 days, I had to kind of take stock. <laughs> I got to be honest with you. 20 days is modest. I mean, like, there are some folks, I mean, even in World of Warcraft, like, across my myriad characters, I've I've easily got well, a good deal more than that. But, like, with EverQuest, you're not kidding. When people were to call it EverCrack, you've got people who lost years, not of in-game time, but, like, every hour of waking sense that they could muster for EverQuest, they did. I knew some of those people, right? And it's it's like, I feel like that is just as serious an addiction as anything else because it's boy what a time suck that game was absolutely you glance down and you think to yourself was my skin always green (laughs) but i want to just before we move on just throw it back to the epic quest thing you were talking about it's just not possible today you can't bake mystery into anything because you've got the answers at your fingertips it's so like it's an incredible world where we can just go to the google and type in just the most vague string of nonsense, like red sword barren lands, and it'll give you, you know, 16 entries for how to complete this one, you know, quest in a World of Warcraft expansion from eight years ago. You know what I mean? And so it's it's a little sad that there's really, especially in an online multiplayer game, where the assumption is that everybody has access to all the information. And in the space of that, you just you can't have those special things anymore. You can no longer be the man because you puzzled your way through an epic quest and figured out how to, you know, how to do something where other folks couldn't. Just like you know, I think uh, Star Wars had an MMO a while ago, Galaxy. Damn, I can't remember the name. But you know, becoming a Jedi was like a months-long exercise in uncovering riddles and things, and that was you had to gather holocrons. holocrons. And if I may. 
by the end of it, you do the full quest, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember exactly, but basically your character has a pre-decided force sensitivity on let's say a scale of one to 100. And once you've gone through the galaxy spanning process of, of uncovering these holocrons representing many, many, many hours, then you find out are you a seven or are you a 90? So you could be Dwayne, you know, the Jedi only in name. And you're like, what do you do, Dwayne? You're like, you see this coin? I'm like, yeah. He's like, watch me flip it with my mind. (laughs) He's like, I really should have just stayed in the cantina on Endor. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. These were not the droids you were looking for. Certainly not. Ah, uh, EverQuest. You know, I didn't play it for long. Um, it was not the the first MMO that really got its teeth into me was indeed World of Warcraft. But EverQuest does have a special place in my heart. Um, I spent many days on that game trying to get out of the uh, trying to get out of the initial zone, trying to puzzle my way through it, and it was like hitting a brick wall. And there was something really charming about that EverQuest. Yeah, a good one. Yeah, yeah. It, it it held your hand not at all, and and I love that because where the game is cruel. It also meant that the game could be out thought mm-hmm. and you could you could get at the drop on it. And legends say that so, uh, a group of people um, dug into the code and started building very interesting, let's call them hacks for the game. Um, but that might be a conversation for another day. Final thought, um, and this is kind of just a little fun story. And we, if you played EverQuest, you are full of these stories. We could have our own podcast. The game creates its own kind of economy, so much so that when I started playing it, we're only a couple months in, and I fell into league with a dark elf necromancer because he needed giant's toes and bones for his spells, and he was too busy to go about that process himself. He was up to level 60 stuff, was up, let's call me myself level 20. Uh, I had time to, to get bones, so I would meet him every Thursday in the tundras with 10 bags of, of bones, <laughs> and he would give me a shocking amount of platinum, and that's how I hustled my way up from the bottom. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Um, boy, that was your Hustle, first... Hustling for them necros. Do you still, do you still have that one on your, uh, on your resume, Dan? <laughs> I do. It's under special skills, oh, hustling bones. Goodness. Yes, my first job was at Burger King, but the one right after that, I was working for the Dark Lord, Dark Lord Soroth, and um, he was uh, he was probably my best employer to date. I, I still have a reference if you need it. Yeah, yeah, no, he will get you on his two way. That's it. That's it. His, his CB radio handle Soroth. All these years later, uh, my number seven was Diablo, dude. Diablo doesn't get as much love as its as its successor, Diablo Two. Diablo 2 is a game that um, is still widely revered as one of the best of all time. Talked about in internet circles until folks are blue in the face and um, you know dropping dead of nostalgia. But the original Diablo was was the only one in the series to this day. I still like Diablo 3. It's a good one. It just hasn't got its, its hooks into me. The original, though, got its hooks into me big time. I had jumped on it a little bit late. Lord, what was the, the expansion, Lord of Destruction? Yeah, yeah, Lord of Destruction. So I jumped into the game just as Lord of, Lord of Destruction came out. And this so Diablo is one of the earliest uh, examples of a Skinner's box. Have you heard that term before? 
I have heard the Skinner's box. What was that? Well, so Skinner's box is is a is kind of like a modern way of describing a game that's functionally all about the loot grind, right? A game that gives you little bits of <clears throat> little bits of uh, of progress, little bits of incremental progress, generally in the form of like loot or randomized drops or what have you. Where the actual gameplay isn't the focus; it's receiving these little bits of feedback that poke you in the dopamine center of your brain. And so Blizzard, masters of uh, of Skinner's boxes and dopamine that they are stumbled across this or maybe not stumbled very deliberately jumped into the pool of, of brain manipulation with this early game which was to my memory my first game where I played almost exclusively online multiplayer and you know uh, really got stuck in with the community of both wonderful people and horrible human beings <laughs> just the worst <laughs> human beings of all time um, and also kept me playing long after the satisfaction of smashing a skeleton in two with you know the click of a button uh, wore off because those skeletons were likely going to drop something that was randomized and also could potentially be the next greatest weapon, you know? And so Diablo and my, myself and, and the same friend actually that jumped in and never winter nights, we spent two years of our lives just doing almost nothing but Diablo on the weekends. Um, I've got fond memories of that game of cheating you know, at, at one point he, he downloaded some sort of bot or I don't even know what it was, but it allowed you to spawn things and, and access portals to, um, you know, different parts of the dungeon without getting yourself there. And even before that, there was the ability to, do you, do you ever do duplication in Diablo? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a cup. There was a couple duplication hacks, and uh, I I dabbled a little bit. Yeah, I mean it's crazy because like this was a game that everyone was playing, one of the most popular online multiplayer games of all time, and the one of the fundamental, the basic tenets of this game, which was generating gold, was utterly trivialized by the fact that with like one or two mouse clicks, uh, you just you dropped something and then right clicked a potion and then clicked on something on the ground or something of that sort. You could easily duplicate any item in the game you could duplicate you know the best weapons you could duplicate gold until you were blue in the face and it's just funny to think about about that where this game breaking bug did very little to stop people from having an absolute blast it was such a simple game like really was there much to it not really right you're clicking a button and and slashing your weapon out you you you're you're tracking with me yeah, yeah, entirely. Yeah, I mean, it's it's there's not a lot to the feedback loop of this game, but that's what made it great. You know, the loot grind, this early example of loot grind and this simple, very simple gameplay loop that could be played largely on autopilot by just click, 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 made for a satisfying session every time. You'd always have something new dropping. You're playing through the same environments, but they're randomized. And you do this again and again and again in this in this early version of video game crack diablo was did you, did you spend a lot of time with it or I, I played a fair amount of diablo across the editions and what i'm hearing andy is that not only was this a great game but it sounds like in some ways it partially inoculated you to the addictive forces of games that came after it because it it feels like it was the, the you know the vaccine that said the loot is not enough right for me anymore because other than wow has anything roped you in since 
that hard. Uh, you know, truth be told, no. WoW is the only game since Diablo that roped me in to such an extent that I would, you know, willingly compromise all my time to deal with it, right? <laughs> to, to, to partake and, in and it. And I would... I would say that that was not a factor of the loot, although the loot is like a friend, uh, the fringe benefit. It was the heavy weight of responsibility of leading your guild to battle. <laughs> well, and wow, it was anyway. But yeah, I mean, Diablo was interesting in that it wasn't even about the prestige, right? Because generally speaking, like, like let's let's talk about what the motivation is for for grinding that gear. There was very little scarcity because you could jump on a server with other people and duplicate a crazy good weapon, right? There was very little in the form of prestige because although you'd run across the same character every now and again, generally you were dropping into a lobby game of like four other players, right? And you probably wouldn't see too many of them again. It's not like, wow, where you've got a, either a persistent server or a guild that you're working with and a group of people that you're, you know, you're, you're gearing up with. This was very much an individual experience, but online. And so you've got, you've got very little in the form of, um, external social value to, to getting this gear. It was just literally all about bashing through dungeons and collecting shit. The actual physical experience of right clicking on an item as a drop, knowing full well that it may not be any good for your character who's now been leveled through from, you know, town all the way on down to hell 700 million times. But there is something so satisfying about watching a demon explode into a loot pinata and picking up that battle axe that you didn't need. To this day, it still eludes me what was so, so, so enthralling, you know? That sound of like an item whipping through the air that Diablo set up as it came out of a monster that. Oh, man. It's so distinctive and satisfying. And, you, you know, you mentioned the gameplay loop. And yeah, it's something that is simple but good, it can be so potent. Uh, especially that you know when it uh, involves hordes of monsters and and just a great design aesthetic. Well, you're just um, you're you know, just clicking just, in eight directions. It's it's crazy. You're just prioritizing right. what direction do I want to click in. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of wild. I mean, EverQuest did this as well, and I can't believe I didn't mention it. The Pavlovian programming of that level up sound was so potent mm. it was so satisfying um if you ever heard it it's unforgettable it's a very strong brong, but it just like you're like your whole brain's like mm, just gives you that dopamine oh, soup yeah. you're like I'd, I'd like to do that again. yeah blizzard are the uh, and, they're they're i mean yes and and sony in, in the case of everquest but blizzard with Di between diablo and um and world of warcraft are the ultimate in dopamine drug dealers in the video game industry blizzard using your brain chemicals against that's you. it man weaponized brain chemicals um Dude, I'm feeling like I want to get into the smoke sesh here. We're halfway through the list, and it's becoming very apparent to me that this is going to be a little bit longer before we're through. Probably going to end up being the whole episode. So, do you want to jump into? Uh, do you want to jump into a smoke sesh? Oh, I think that truer words were never. And spoken. then we can go into your number six or three or one, whatever it is. Two twenty-two. 22 19. 19. Episode nineteen. Twenty. Girl, smoke sesh time, Danny. Girlfriend. Yeah, you ready? 
I feel like this is exactly the uh, ooh. This is the pick me up I need because this uh, this list I'm feeling pretty. I'm feeling pretty good. It's nice to revisit these games, man. Like you know, even just thinking about EverQuest, not a game I think about on the regular, but definitely at least in my mind's theater, a game that I would love to revisit at some point. And it's maybe off in the far distant future, uh, the the, Im- the immaterial time where I've got nothing but 15 hours on a weekend to jump into EverQuest. Don't know when that's ever going to happen. But if it does, I'm going to enjoy the shit out of it. Man, I, as a as a, an EverQuest veteran, I dip my toes back into the waters. And it actually, there's a really great story about that that I'm not sure I can tell on the podcast. I'll have to check with our legal counsel. But... When I did step back in, I the world was unrecognizable to really? me. All the the ways things were done, like I went to the East Common Lands, which um, for for folks that are in the know, that's that's where the unofficial marketplace was. You couldn't link items at that time, so you literally were shouting items and their stats into this unofficial. Does anybody place want to buy a deer gathered. hide? Yeah. Do you want to? Who wants an X axe? Anyway, um, that said. Um, that's no longer a thing. The place was barren. And I'm like, where's the new hotness? And it's the plane of knowledge. And you can turn yourself into an, an NPC. So when you eventually return to your normal life, you put yourself in vendor mode inside of this one place in the plane of knowledge. And you become like a shopkeeper. Oh, that's cool. With the items you want to sell and the prices. And it, it there's a bunch of neat stuff. But, you know, I felt like a, a time traveler who'd been, you know, uh, awoken generations later and, you know, they're, they're, we're not using wood to build bird feeders anymore. It's super globulin. Like, yeah, you know, it's you, just everything sell, felt, no, you don't want it? All right. You can't. Everything you, felt bizarre and strange. You, you, oh, yeah, now, yeah, now, so now you want You can't it. go home again. That's what, that's what I was driving at. You can't go, you can't home, go home again. again. It's true. And it's, you know, it's, it's fascinating because there's games like that that I have in my back pocket. Like, um, there's a game called Ashen Empires, which was very much an ultimate, uh, ultimate, Ultima Online ripoff. But it was my earliest uh, introduction to a, like a 2D isometric RPG. Um, and, you know, I had a similar experience. I played it with a buddy for two years, just played the crap out of that game. And went you know, over the, over the years have checked in it on it in on it from time to time and went back to it like two years ago on a lark. The game's in maintenance mode. A ton of expansions have come out. Nobody's in any of the towns that they used to be in. And it's like, you go back and it's like, it's like, it's like visiting your old high school. You know, there's the, there's the ghosts of, of your life past, but there's nothing's really the same anymore. It's all it's all raiders and gutter dwellers left, and when you try to tell them about your glory days, they just steal your kidneys. That's it, man. They just shank you and put you in a bath of ice. And speaking of which, why don't we jump into the smoke sesh here, um, dude? I have got the worst strain for right now. It's about ten forty p.m. Uh, I'm running a little low on the green, and the only thing I have in my possession right now is some green crack. So, I mean, <laughs> great, because I'm sure I can sail through the episode afterwards real bad for going to bed. Real bad. Yeah, and then next year's taxes on a speculative basis. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Well, listen, at least I'll get a good jump on my 2019 tax return after consuming this Looking green. Looking at you, CRA. There you go. Up top, down low, in the pocketbook. Um, boy, so what are, you, uh, what are you smoking on there today, Sailor Jim? Uh, I have stacked up something glorious, something beautiful, an expertly cured uh, pink rock star uh, from the Broken Coast. Oh, jealous. And boy, 
this looks like a piece of of magic. Something about pinks that hit me so hard. I had some pink Death Star um, a couple months back, and I don't know what it is. Like, I'm pretty good with cannabis. I don't smoke enormous quantities and so i can generally gauge the potency of a strain pretty well right because i'm not just zero to ten every time i'm typically you know smoking a small bowl here and there so something's really potent i can tell that pink death star blasted me off to the goddamn moon like that was an unparalleled experience for the small amount of cannabis that i consumed so um long story short good luck Thank you very much. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so uh, did you want to start us off? Tell us a little bit about that nose. Yeah. So this green crack that I've got here is a small, tight, very, <laughs> it just feels weird saying it, but uh, small, tight, really compacted um, bud. Looking at it, it's uh, it's not, not super frosty, a little rusty-ish, rusty brownish. Um, the, the leaves themselves are a nice kind of lime green color and breaking it open, it's a little dry, which I find kind of typical of sativas, I guess. Like, I, I don't know if, if that's just a coincidence in the condition of the bud that I've received or if in general sativas are a little little drier than fudgy indicas, but um, this, one, this one is no exception. It's a little bit dry on the inside. Uh, the smell, oh, it's... Uh, it's like kind of, kind of sweet, uh, fruity. It's definitely got like a fruity note to it. Feels a little fruity, um, but like a kind of almost a one-dimensional sweet note. You know what I mean? Good. It's uh, it's got something definitely interesting, um, and you know, I, I I generally I generally think it's going to be just a beauty to consume. I'm getting in there, you can tell us all about Green Crack. Fantastic. Well, I will hand off this review to the one, the only. Jeremy Irons. Oh, Jeremy. What is green crack? Don't let the name fool you. This is pure cannabis. Few strains compared to green crack's sharp energy and focus as it induces an invigorating mental buzz. It keeps going throughout the day with a tangy, fruity (gasps) flavor. Oh, fruity. Redolent of mango... Green crack is a great daytime strain that may help consumers fight fatigue, stress, and depression. Green crack has branched into two genetic lineages, the most common of which is its sativa line descended from skunk number one. The 75% indica variety of green crack is said to come from an Afghani strain that is marked by its tighter bud structure. Sorry, did you say 70% indica, Jeremy? Well, it has a doubled lineage, one that is dominant in sativa and another which is dominant in indica. Because its name perpetuates a negative image of cannabis, some people have taken to calling this strain Crush with a C or Green Crush instead. Green Crush is cool. Wow. The flavor is so juicy. It's got like a metallic twang in the back of my mouth. Um, the smoke is is a little, little. I don't want to say acrid. That's the wrong word, but it's bitey. It's biting me a bit, but it's leaving behind this juicy, luscious little flavor. Green Crush. Oh, amazing. Whew. Well, I feel energized. Stay alert. Stay safe. 
Well, buddy, the uh, the flavor notes on this guy are earthy, citrus, and sweet. Mm-hmm. So you're 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 on the money on this one. If I may, I would love to tell you about this fine nug before. Well, me. please do. One more time, you are smoking on. This one is a pink rock pink star. Pink rock star. And a rock star it is. The the crown that I've I've pulled out here is chunky and huge. It barely fits in the bottle. Um, you know, we've said popcorny before. This is popcorny and coney. There's cones coming off this, uh, these popcorny nugs. And as I look around it, um, there's a mixture of the the light green and the dark green that gets darker towards the ends of the leaves lighter along the stems and the branches and it is just smattered with like a sugar coating of crystals uh with little sort of um dark brown hairs not super dark but i mean trying to think of something to compare to get bent sort of sort of like a brown orange Mm. And the nose on it is, once again, and I got to give it to the guys at Broken Coast uh, and gals, they cure with the best of them because the nose on this thing is so incredibly clear. It's spice, peppery spice right on the top with a lemon backbone and just a touch of like that woody pine behind. And I mean, it. this thing makes itself no, known. I don't have to get deep into uh, to hear what it's about it kind of it lets me know from a mile that broken coast you can smell from across the room it's some loud weed um and you don't you wouldn't know it because the containers that it comes in are utterly odor sealed the second you even so much as crack that lid the whole room is aware yeah it gets into it and uh if i if i were to pull open um the well let me take a good taste on it first Oh, Pink Rockstar is an indica-dominant hybrid cross between Pink Kush and Rockstar Kush and has the effects and flavors of both to match. Rockstar, a cross between Rock Bud and Sensi, is a a potent indica-dominant hybrid that delivers strong effects without debilitating sedation. With aromatic notes of spice and grape, Rockstar is a favorite medicine for headaches, pains, and sleep disorders. Its powerful body and cerebral effects make Rockstar popular among growers who typically harvest their outdoor plants in mid-October. And um, da, 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 da. Pink Kush, as coveted as its OG relative, is an indica-dominant hybrid with powerful body-focused effects. Um, in its exceptional variations, pink hairs burst from bright green buds barely visible under a blanket of sugar-like trichomes with traces of sweet vanilla and candy perfume that's lovely that sounds exactly what i'm dealing with and because this is lab tested herb i can tell you a little bit more about it um this particular rock star is a 30 percent sativa 70 percent indica and um the terpene profile is uh 0.40 uh karyophylline which is that uh pepper the tw- tw- 0.22 limonene, linalool, me, which is the lemon, linalool. linalool. Nope, nope, limonene. Really? Yep. And then beta pinene and mycerine come in the next couple ones, which give you sort of your your wood and your uh, sort of hopsy basil uh, profile, I believe. Um, and uh, I'm dealing with a 17% T- THC and less than 0.05 CBD. 
Uh, and there's something nice about knowing that in past episodes, I have to um, query my good friend Andy to let me know what I'm dealing with. But now I know exactly. Now the scientists how thin the can ice tell is. you. Yeah, so that's an approach right. far and less prone to putting you over the edge and into a tummy tuck. It's almost like we should do it for everything. Mm. Um, my little bit of a synopsis was off the Herb Approach. That's HerbApproach.com. Where did you read? Uh, where did you read about um, Green Crack? Well, Leafly, uh, uh, Leafly, Leafly gotcha. as always, yes. and then flipping back to Broken Coast's own product page yeah. um, for the for the scientific breakdown. Well, isn't that lovely? Now, sorry, did you say limonene? Because I feel like I'm having a stroke. That is indeed uh, a substance contained in the in the peel of lemons. Of course, it's both. Um, I mean, that's that's how terpenes work. My my man, they they arrive in fruits and they arrive in in these flowers as they. As they do, uh, yes, it's L I M O N E N E, wow. and it gives them both that that lemon vibe. I feel I wasn't aware. Cool. Well, that is very damn cool. Very damn cool. Learn something new every day. Oh man, how is uh, how's it settling in with you? Like I actually am feeling a lot more sedated than I expected to with this green crack. Maybe someone's uh, swapped out my green crack for some green chill. I just, I, I, I expected cause I've, I've enjoyed green crack, purple crack before. Um, and the sensation of alertness and let's go was immediately apparent this time. It's like, yeah, there's a little bit of mental alertness there, but my body just wants to go and, and cuddle itself under 60 hundred blankets. Oh, nice. I, I would say that the mists of the influence of this particular herb are still uh, falling all about me. And, and uh, before long, I'll be beset on the, the left and the right by them. But right now, they're they're falling gently around me. I, I would say there is there is a calming effect, a little bit of glue right in the center of the chest. Right. But other than that, there's actually a little bit, I'm feeling a little bit in the front of my face. Um, not too heavy though. It's still a gentle spritzing. Ah, gentle spritzing of highness. Well, isn't that lovely? Um, shall we jump back into the game synopsis? Yes. Um, I believe was I was I about to to float on or what? I mean, buddy, I think we're both floating on. But uh, episode twenty, number six. (laughs) I like how you referenced the episode. Had to make sure it was clear for all to hear. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Um, so um, that means that it is time to talk about the masterful Zelda A Link to the Past. Oh, I wasn't expecting you to go there. One of one of the gems of the SNES, the Super Nintendo, and I would say the series. I would argue, you know, a potential high point for the series um, you know, you had the original creator coming back to the table to to recapture his vision. If you recall, um, the first, and I'm going to butcher some of the names of the early guys, I apologize. The first Zelda game um, was that, that overland view, the, 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 heads, the heads down display, the bird's eye view. Uh, and, you know, through a, Link was making his way through a dangerous land um, beset with enemies all of a side. Um, the second Zelda took it a little bit of a different direction, went side-scrolling and had a night-day sequence and did some other things, some very Castlevania-type feel. What? Yeah. Yeah, Zelda 2, like on the NES. I'm, there was, I'm sorry, Zelda went side-scroller at some point? I mean, I'm betraying, oh, yeah, I'm betraying my lack of NES knowledge because NES was not a system that I owned, but I just 
can't even imagine a 2D Zelda from a side perspective. Come with me on the way back wagon to the second release. I'm going to say that it's 1988, apropos of nothing. But uh, you are making your way through a side-scrolling adventure uh, that you can backtrack on, not single direction, um, through fields and into dungeons. And uh, this is not a game that I mastered. I found the combat and the exploration painful, and uh, it's largely thought of the low point in the series. Wow. Uh, <clears throat> I have no idea. Uh, no disrespect to anyone who that was your deal. I seem to remember when you were at full health, your little sword that you have would shoot uh, the classic like energy burst. Um, but other than that, in many ways, it was uh, indiscernible. Um, it's that's so, that's wild. And it, as a return, you mean an un, so this just to be clear, it had an unbroken world in both directions. You're talking about like a Terraria style game in Zelda Two. You're bending my reality, yeah. sir. <laughs> this is wild. Yeah. Yeah. And and it had some um, obscure things that you, like, uh, in terms of the exploration that you wouldn't know what to do unless you already knew it. Like, there was strange information, that, and I'm not a pro on this game, that if you didn't already have it, you wouldn't know to proceed. There's a similar thing in Castlevania Simon's Quest, that if you didn't know to hit this one block over here, you can't proceed in the game. And it's like, why, why did you do this? Right. <laughs> Is it to sell the Nintendo Power Edition uh, uh, with, the, with the clue in it? Who knows? So, uh, a triumphant return... This is a game that, that captures you from the very start, the very first note of music. The tension is dialed right in, and it is teaching a class on what the MIDI chip, I believe it's a MIDI chip inside the SNES, can do. And it's making these, uh, from the hauntingly beautiful to the, the nail-biting, uh, stressful uh, uh, music, it, it's, it's coining such uh, songs that will continue through the series, like the Master Sword right. song. Um, that that is always hosted to the master the master sword, or I believe it's called uh, Kikera uh, Kakariko. Kikariko, Kakariko. Thank you, Village Zelda's Lullaby. They all make their appearance here um, in the original in the original uh, SNES release of A Link to the Past. Yeah. Do you remember the music in this? Bad I mean, boy? dude, you know the the music in Zelda is is one of the constants of great video game production, and so yeah, I, I'll be honest. I own this game, but I only picked it up in recent years. So I have a nice copy tucked away from my SNES. I've played through it a couple times, um, but never to the end. And so the, orig the my original exposure to the Zelda music was with Ocarina of Time, but it's evident, you know, the the parallels and what kind of kind of video game soundtrack pipe Zelda was laying <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> it was some impressive, some impressive eight-bit beats. Yes, sir. Um, and uh, when when you get into this game, it has one of the best cold opens, certainly on the SNES. Um, you know, you're dropped in in uh, 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 a hut on the edge of the forest, waking up in the dead of night while evil uh, strikes, and you're following your father into the castle where he's gone to uh, face. Sorry, said sorry, evil. Dan. Can yeah. I tell you something else that's a cold open? I'm ready. A tub of ice cream. Now you better be like popping open the lid of a Haagen-Dazs as you say that. Nope. But I am thinking about ice cream an awful lot. So literally that was just like 
out of nowhere. Apropos, I wouldn't nothing. say nowhere. I'd say out of a very hungry place. Uh, Andy, do you have ice cream I, currently? In I the fridge? so don't. It's painful how no ice cream I have. That's so weird because in my fridge, there's two distinct tubs of ice cream. Can I tell you? About oh, them? I, you can tell me all you want, but I know that you're purposely restricting yourself to a 500 calorie day. So there'll be no ice cream for you either, my good man. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about them. One is a velvety cookies and cream with real cookies. Jesus. Dough, while the other one finds it to be itself to be a delicious locally sourced oh, mocha. Bless blend. me with your mercy. Your ice creamy mercy. <laughs> Uh, now now we're both suffering. Um, where was I? I don't know. The verbal laceration <laughs> so, of no ice cream. Listen, aren't you aren't you lactose intolerant? What? No. Lactose intolerant? No. Well, maybe maybe that's, that's just generally intolerant. That's misinformation. <laughs> Spread about me by the enemy. I mean I know I know how you feel about uh, air hostesses. I know you take specific issue with them. <laughs> oh, <laughs> especially ones that dare to have opinions. Excuse me, Miss. I think I'm in charge. I'm a here. confident man. Anyway, back to a link to the past. <laughs> I knew that would bring us back. Oh, uh, I love it. So, uh, cue this game. It lets you know what it's all about, and it walks you into the combat under tense circumstances. And for for a game to like in, let really not let you know what its energy is. Um, this early at this system really takes a cinematic look at it. Um, and, you know, when it comes down to the gameplay, it really brings back and uh, the idea that Link is going to be solving some puzzles in these dungeons, right? Do you remember some of the puzzles from uh, these delves in uh, Link to the Past? Um, none of the puzzles. <laughs> <laughs> Andy. Uh-uh. Andy. None, of the, uh, none Andy. of the puzzles are coming to mind, Daniel. <laughs> I think one puzzle is coming to your mind. Oh, the uh, the ever living puzzle of <sighs> ice cream. We we drop ourselves into a briar patch of neurons, and then we say, "Can we verbally escape here with our wits intact?" The answer is almost assuredly no. Please, no. Back to a link to the past. <laughs> um. So yeah, there's some puzzles. There's some puzzles in this game. <laughs> they were rather, um, they were well rather as, good ones, if I am recalling. It's coming back to me now. Uh, good puzzles, real good ones. Good. Some of my favorite ones. There's the one where you have to push the thing, and then you have to pull the thing, and then you have to shoot that other thing with an arrow or a boomerang. Um, one time there was a bomb. Mm. Um, um, excellent, excellent Andy. game. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, and also, um, and there'll be a test on this later, has some of the best boss fights in this series. Sure. Um, the one that I comes to mind is there's uh, like a uh, desert, the desert dungeon uh, has a triple worm that comes out of the ground and it's dancing around and in three dimensions is coming out of the sand and arcing back into the sand. And it, you know, it's the game really has that, that three dimensional vibe then where it can go over top of you and you're trying to catch it with your sword while it dives back. The, tri down the triple worm getting the triple, the triple worm. worm. Got gotcha. you. Yeah. So, yeah, just some dynamic fights that really stand out through the whole series. 
Um, and you know, I'm, I'm coining somebody else's term, but one of the, the game feels like someone has a whimsy injector, and they've been injecting the game with whimsy through the entire development because that's the the vibe that you feel. You know, you, you the world has this has this beautiful magic to it that summons you into. Listen, it. I'm not a fan of of anything that needs to be injected, but if there was whimsy in a needle, you know that I'd have it. You'd mainline that that whimsy. I'd head on down to the whimsy clinic and have them inject whimsy right into my whimsinator. <laughs> yeah, I see. I see. And that that's so incredibly clear upon me. I mean, yes. Um, it also... What's that? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Whimsy, whimsy apparent. Hashtag whimsy apparent. So uh, the, the game also... This is the first to introduce the idea that there's a dark world and a light world. It had these puzzles uh, and world that you had to explore by you know, morphing between the two and really figuring it out. And I remember this game took some focus for me to to get to the end of. And and I was my progress was dashed many times trying to beat this game. Right. At the mercy. And yet did you get a hand did you get a hand on a link to the past ever? Uh yeah, no, I have as I as I mentioned earlier on, I do have a copy. Um and I have I have mm-hmm. dug in pretty far to that game several times. Again, it's like how can I put it? When you talked about the whimsy of Zelda, when you talk about um, the the gameplay loop that Zelda gets into from the perspective Zelda that Link gets into from the perspective of puzzles, from the perspective of exploring an overland and enjoying the dungeons contained within. Um, again, my first introduction to that game was the N sixty four title Ocarina of Time. And so going back in the past and playing the Super Nintendo version doesn't give me the same opening sentimental feeling that, you know, the the same mechanisms realized in the N64 version do. But there's just a timelessness to the game that just brings to light how great the franchise actually is, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting how a game can find out what it's going to be and just be able to hand that spirit through the generations because i think we can agree that zelda keeps this wonderful tone um throughout it and one of the things is mystery and there seems to be a thing about innocence in it as well and well it's an intense um, story told from an innocent perspective link even in his most heroic Forms, whether it be adult Link in Nintendo 64 or the most recent Breath of the Wild Link character, still has an innocent fairy-like quality to him that just makes the character's dark portents, right, or the or the the sinister environments that he's put into seem that much more sinister. Yeah, yeah, and I like to imagine, uh, you know, every time they do a dramatic camera angle on uh, on uh, you know adult Link. And, uh, you know, he's got a, the, the classic gasping look. He's like, <gasps> you know, and I'm like, I'm like, I hope in the next frame he like, you he just whispers under his breath, like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, now will be the time he's going to, but yeah, that, that silence gives him that, that, that level of innocence. I, I, I think also this game lets us know that Link really loves green. And while we he, will, he will dabble in other colors as the seasons go on and fashion demands it, he always comes back to that, that stark green. Yep. If you're trying to stop yourself from burning to death, jump into red for a little while, but always back to green. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, some games teach kids valuable insights like survival skills or, you know, what to do in, in a dangerous situation. This one says, 
Red clothes don't catch on fire. <laughs> uh, well, uh, that is, I mean, listen, Link to the Past is not my original Zelda game. It's not my favorite Zelda game, but it's definitely a masterpiece. There's no question there. Um, so is Metal Gear Solid, which is my number six. And this is the uh, this is the one that you've placed somewhere higher up in your list. So we can talk about Metal Gear Solid a little bit later. What was your number five, Danny? Yeah, you want... You want to hold off? I get to double oh, duty. Get to double duty. We, uh, you know, this is the the elusive twentieth twentieth double down. So uh, why not? Well, uh, that that works for me. Uh, coming in at probably number six. You're nope. number five. You're number, number no. Nope, you're number five. <laughs> number five. Uh, which way are we We're counting up, again? Anyway, down, uh, whichever your preference. Around the corner. Uh, you know, we keep touching on this idea, and and we're gonna keep touching on it. But this is where it really started to hit me. Going back through these games that I love has such a deep emotional effect. On I know. Me. Like, I feel this nostalgia well up inside me, and and this one is the one where I actually really started to to feel it. And I think it's because I, you know, uh, it has a lot of uh, family play with me in connection with my brothers and sisters. And this game. Um, is something with some of the deepest heart out of anything on our list. And we're going deep into the PC library. We're going into the world of point and click and LucasArts to find the secret of Monkey Ooh, Island. Guybrush Threepwood, the mighty man. You got it, my man. This one hit us in, in 1990 running on the scum engine <laughs> How appropriate. Um, by the likes of Tim Schafer and... Oh, I used to remember these other guys' names, and they're brilliant because they they wrote the script together. And this is maybe the funniest game ever made. I would I would probably agree with you, which is hilarious because a it's been thirty years since this thing was released. You'd think that someone would have gone down the vein of humor that Monkey Island seems to still be the king of. And B, I rented this from like my childhood grade school library. And it was way more entertaining and way more comedically dark than it had any business being in the heart of a children's Catholic school. <laughs> I mean, this is the question that I don't get and I've been racking my brain about as, as sort of a student of great comedy, an amateur student of great comedy. Is <laughs> a great com as a great seasoned comedian, I like to take it. <laughs> student, trust me, student. Uh, uh, it's, it's one of those things where how does a game like Monkey Island, whose words are text-based on the screen, get timing so perfect at every verbal beat every time your character turns to camera even though he's a collection of you know pixels he turns to camera at right just the right time to make it hilarious they they use the subtle anim animations with, li with little graphic sort of uh chutzpah they have they bring it to bear so well that just is so enjoyable, and so uh, for those of you, that, sorry, that's sorry, that's please. crazy because like the displacing of six pixels can be so dramatically obvious, right? It's Powerful. yeah, it's pretty wild to think of, and it's you're so right. It's almost like the breaking of the 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 fourth wall, man. Yeah, yeah. First, the fourth, at least one of those walls, one first. of those load bearing walls gets broken. Uh, and it's and it's it's always it's always it's always right in time for a, a pithy one liner that has stood the test of time. Yeah, absolutely. And, the, you know, I find so immediately I, I got to like the main character, Guybrush Threepwood, so quick. He is, 
as he describes himself, Guybrush Threepwood, Mighty Pirate. Yeah. But that title is aspirational uh, because when he tries to tell the, the group of pirates that he meets inside uh, the very first uh, bar that he stumbles across. Do you remember the name of the bar? No, not there for me. Um, he announces he's a, a mighty pirate and I, they say something like, you know, where's your ship? Uh, you know, can you sword fight and something else? I forget. Apology. Apologies. And he's got nothing for that. So Guybrush Threepwood, Mighty Pirate, is suddenly on his journey to prove that he is a mighty pirate on the Me- on Melee Island. Right. Uh, and the story kicks off from there. And, you know, he's both at the same time charming and bumbling, uh, you know, clever and full of calamity and the game moves forward with the the silliest brand of humor you know uh that you can imagine uh it turns out that the the way a pirate becomes good at sword fighting has very little to do with the flicking of his wrist and how fast he can get a stab on it has really everything to do to how quickly you can demoralize your opponent with the right series of insults right <laughs> a little bit a little bit of trash talk for your point and click adventure. Um yeah, man, I mean this game is infinitely entertaining and there's just you were talking about nostalgia a little bit earlier on in terms of thinking back to early days and and the people you were with when you were playing these games, which were decidedly not multiplayer games except for the fact that they contained such great worlds and such great characters that you could all collectively watch this just slightly better than a virtual storybook unfold. It's like all of the Sierra games, right? Like your King's Quest, your Space Quest, your Quest for Glory, uh, Fried Quest. Cajun quest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and you know what? I found growing up, you typically were either a LucasArts gamer for the point and click or a Sierra gamer. I mean, maybe both, to be be fair. Let me... I listen. I played both. I enjoyed both. But one, you either preferred one studio or the other. Right. One to you stood out as being better. And, you know, while I love my Sierra games, Sierra games were the ones that they felt like they were the ones w- written with the most uh, intellectual integrity involved. Right. Like, and and it also it and listen. I was, if I can get a little controversial, I was raised in a in a in a very sort of strict Christian upbringing as a younger man. It struck me the kind of point and click adventure if it was written by someone who is a devout Christian. Why are you talking? <laughs> like about there was just a certain Sierra games. There's just a certain. There, yeah, there's this certain attention to a certain quality. Like the lady who wrote it, her name was Roberta, Roberta Williams. You know, yeah. And like they're just there was a certain conservative cleanliness to the games. Well, yeah. I mean, it was. I mean, let's not forget these guys also made Leisure Suit Larry. So let's not give Roberta Williams. Not Roberta Williams. Not Roberta. W- well, Roberta that's, Williams. She didn't. Sure, write that's that. fine and dandy. But coming out of Sierra, so that's the outlier. That's the outlier, and that's why I'm also going to say that you know LucasArts had more of the funny games, and you're going to say Leisure Suit Larry, and you're going to say Space Quest because Space, Space Quest was, funny. was very it was. funny. But uh, by and large, the studio, by and large, and, uh, you know, one thing that I loved is a distinction, as as fun it was to see how many ways you could die in every Sierra game, and here's good news, you're going to stumble uh, on most of them. of them as you try to solve the plot. Uh, <laughs> Monkey Island, you are nigh invincible through the game, um, you know, it, to the point where the, the game recognizes that and makes a joke on, uh, about it. When you're on Monkey Island, you're exploring around, uh, 
you can step on this one part in this one cliff and the cliff g- falls away and you fall to your death wily e. coyote style the brick goes long before you go and your neck stretches and you know you, a sierra load restart or quit game comes up a new game load or restart with the the clever thing about dying you know they always want to say some clever sometimes it's a limerick or a, a poem about how you died uh and while this this screen is sitting there waiting for you to click on it's like oh it looks like you died you'll have to start over um guybrush threepwood comes flying back up and lands on the side of the cliff perfectly on his feet and he just has one line he says rubber tree <laughs> uh i mean yeah it's that it's that it's just it's an irreverent game and that makes it definitely cool um would i take a sierra game would i take a king's quest or a space quest over secret of monkey island it just happened to have worked out for me that way and in fact space quest six um king's quest five quest for glory three those three games were all vying for um a spot on this list Ultimately, I had to push them to the side a little bit because they're so nostalgic and probably not something that I would still even pick up today, right? If not just for Mm -hmm. the nostalgia kick. But in terms of my formative gaming years, like playing those games are are definite high points in there. And and yeah, Roger Wilco of Space Quest, almost as funny as Guybrush Threepwood. Maybe not as funny, but pretty damn close. What I, I'd say, you're right, and but the distinction is, I like Guybrush Threepwood. I I like him. I want him to win. You know, uh, Roger Wilco, uh, he feels like not a great dude. Like, hopefully, it works out for him. But I mean, he's he's stumbling along the line to be to of likable at all times. Oh, for sure. He's he he's he sits in squarely in the boots of a of an utter degenerate. But Roger Wilco, I salute you. Wonderful. So, gun to your head, gun to your balls. Uh, a Terminator needs to go back in time and either kill Tim, Tim Schaefer, wiping out most of the good LucasArts games, or Roberta Williams, the sweet soul that gave us King's Quest and uh, the other like tales. Who who does who does that does Arnold go back? Tim and, Tim's and go gone. Away? Bye bye Tim bye Timmy. <sighs> oh, Long live times, Roberta. Times. So just to round this thing out, I'm going to hit you with a couple fun Monkey Island facts. Um, uh, the the score of it um, was done in consultation with John Williams, and in the beginning, uh, the songs have this great piratey theme song, um, which goes along with the fact that they actually wrote a screenplay for a movie version of this, which is was thought to be handed around uh, until it became Pirates of the Caribbean. Really, hundreds of hundreds of revisions. Broken telephone, Pirates um, of the Caribbean. Sounds plausible. The the um, the Orlando Bloom character. Mm-hmm. He is the Guybrush Threepwood character. Yeah. Put put through the mill until it becomes that. And Miss um, Swan, um, the, can't think of her name right now, the very skinny. Taylor, uh, Elizabeth Taylor. His daughter. Nope. Nope, you're the worst. Thanks. Um, anyway, she's the analog for Governor Marley in the game. And uh, believe it or not, uh, evil zombie pirate uh, uh, LeChuck is the what what got interested? What they thought got split into Jack Sparrow and uh, the the first couple, uh, you know, zombie pirates. So the formula is all there, um, and so that's thought to be. It's also one of the five games picked for the exhibition for the art of video games to be in the Smithsonian. Uh, you're ki- in the Smithsonian. Yep, that's actually incredible. I mean, I actually hadn't realized that we had transcended to a spot where we were 
outside of like a niche collection or or archive right specifically for video games where we were archiving things like video games in the smithsonian that's pretty fascinating oh yeah yep it's a it's an art form right and it's one of it's one of those art forms that's by its nature digital and means that it is in a sense perishable under the right circumstances right? no it's so true guard it guard it close to the chest and i gotta say andy this game could be my number one yeah it could be could be close to it the way you talk about it. Um, and and I would I would get that. Uh, however, it does exist as uh, number five on your list. So let's not get too crazy. Um, if you have to be constrained by like a concept like numbers ordered in a list, if like that's the kind kind of guy you, you are, you know, man. Like sometimes I just like to ground my conversations in the fabric of reality. You can like ground your thumb like in your butt if you want to. The ground doesn't taste like ice cream. Still there, it's there right? for me, man. It's really front of the lobe. <laughs> We're this. This recording is going to be peppered by your various food. I, I, it's just all ice cream. It's one hundred percent ice cream. Like Delta Burke's diary. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Um, I, we, what you were saying something a second ago. Oh yeah, the that the digital mediums somewhat perishable. It's true. It's funny because like Space Quest. Four, which is the Time Rippers classic game, love that one. I remember trying to play it um, on whatever, just a mid two thousands Windows XP machine, and at that point there was not a good solution for running that game natively. You, know, you just couldn't do it. Now you could get a DOS emulator that someone had hacked together and and you know jump jump into the game that way, but obviously as technology you know moves forward in time, some of those old those old technologies degrade to the point that they're no longer compatible with our, uh, with our current operating systems and hardware. So it'll be neat to see like what, what steps will be taken to archive these games or to bring them up to spec. And, you know, to its credit, I think secret of monkey, monkey Island was remade in the recent past, right? Yeah, it was actually, um, both number one and number two, um, got that treatment. They came out in 1990, 1991 respectively. And what I love about the re-releases is that they do an, an updated art style, which is, uh, very true to the original. Like they, they don't radically redo any right. scenes, but, but redo them to give them a, a nice, um, uh, uh, update. But at any time you can click um, a toggle in the game to go back to the original graphics. Oh, nice. I like that. Which I love. Yeah, uh, yeah, speaking yeah. of which, side little sidebar here. Secret of Mana just did that. Thank goodness. Because the Secret of Mana that came out for the computer had just about the most god-awful, atrocious train wreck of graphics I had seen compared to the original, which had just the most vibrant painterly graphics of all time that eased your soul and put you into a warm bath of video game appreciation. Um, so yeah, hats off for, for making that change. Because now I can go back and curiously look at that 3D... I'll hesitate to say abomination. 3D stuff that you put together, but if I want to, I can right back to the old school. Anyway. I, Andy, I see that you've snuck in a new turn of phrase um, that is suspiciously like a salute. You're now, it's a taking my your hat off to things. And I, I feel like you're using this as a as a, like a, something to wean you I, off. I can just everything. take my hat off if I want to. It's totally within my rights. Andy, do you, do you even have a hat in the room? Uh, no, but I got a hoop and a stick. Uh, Metal Gear Solid Boom. was my number six. I've already said that, so let's move on. Mass Effect is my number five. <laughs> Mass Effect was um, a moment. When, when, when Mass Effect happened, it was an event. <laughs> 
when Mass Effect and I started Jeez. dating, I just I got so deep on it. But like Mass Effect to me was my Kotor. So people talk about Kotor even now with the kind of reverence, you know, reserved only for the most holy of video games. KOTOR deserved it, deserved it for sure because it came at a time when there weren't a whole lot of options in the space of doing uh, a sci-fi space RPG. But Mass Effect came and grabbed me in a way that KOTOR never did for a couple different reasons. Uh, and to this day, it's probably the game that I had the hardest time putting down from the, from the perspective of a story, right? Like there are plenty of other games out there that I've played solid, but you know, if in the case of Diablo, it's the loot element or in the case of world of Warcraft, it's the, you know, the quest grind. And in the case of mass effect, it was strictly the story. I wanted to see my way through it. Did you get a chance to check it out? Mass Effect is one that I, I've t touched in on a couple of times. I know some of the main story beats, and I played through the first couple missions, and I can see that it that it's a that it's a good game. Like I would I would play it, but I never I never put the time in. Yeah, it. no, Mass Effect had, um, Mass Effect had this perfect marriage of vibe that was going on. So the sci-fi that they portray, it's not the hyper realistic, you know, sci-fi. Um, or the, of like a, boy, what's a good example, of like a destiny, and it's not the lived in, worn space reality of Star Wars, it's genuinely yep. somewhere in between, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a sci-fi that's full of mysteries, and, and, and full of, you know, only recent history, you know, it almost exists in a time that doesn't really know much about its past, and doesn't really know much about its future, and there's this looming threat that the game takes you through that just you know, just keeps you puzzled and wanting more the entire game. Um, I unfortunately didn't take this game seriously at all when I popped it into the tray. I was borrowing it from a friend. And so I ended up making a Commander Shepard that looked an awful lot like Dennis Rodman. And I, I ended up <laughs> having to play with De Commander Dennis Rodman for the entire very serious, very beautifully woven story. <laughs> So, so it, it was, and by the end of it, this somehow had Dennis Rodman had trans had transcended being completely absurd, and to this day is the Commander Shepherd of my mind. So, of your mind in your head, Cannon, it's it's Rodman driving nets and like having different uh, facial piercings. Oh. Just like a super quick aside, let me just feather this in here. So. Uh, one of the first times um, that uh, Final Fantasy was seen uh, in my space, what had happened is um, my uh, my buddies, which I'm going to not name them, but let's call them uh, B and J. Come on. So it's B's game and he's serious. Okay, let's call him Bork. Bork is serious about playing Final Fantasy and is like going to do this thing for serious. Well, our other friend Jack is a little bit of a jackass. So when... Um, when uh, Bork goes upstairs to grab a drink on the character creation screen, um, Jack takes the opportunity to select the name for Cloud as, yeah, pick that, but then to rename Tifa, bitch. <laughs> now, what's, what's great is Bork is coming down the stairs before he can get bi uh, a bitch in, and so what he gets is Bick. <laughs> and then and then hits the next thing and 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 Bork proceeds unaware and he's just like talking to people about this big character and everyone's like what <laughs> and, and and no one has any idea and it's it's not till much much later that it, he realizes that 
that it's bitch spelt incorrectly, but he's so far in a restart is impossible. So to him, it's a cloud and Aries and, uh, uh, and, and Bic. Oh man, that's amazing. So, so the in joke is in uh, any game, the first character that comes up, uh, female character that you can name, uh, Bork now names them Bic. Bic, just a little. That's yeah. a beautiful. That's a beautiful full circle turnaround. I like that one. <laughs> I like that. Um, boy. Anyway. So Dennis Rodman, Commander Shepard, <laughs> made his way through the storyline. And the beautiful thing about Mass Effect is that it's a very focused storyline. But what they do to make the universe feel more vast than it is and to make the story feel like more freeform than it is, is they give you a branching path that really all leads to the same destination. But especially in that, I don't want to say era because it's not so far, far uh, before, but in that place of Mass Effect being this first kind of sci-fi RPG that really ended up catching my interest at the very least with story. Um, it, it felt like a really innovative and yet focused way to not just give you a roam around the galaxy and do things of, of, you know, unimportant couriership, but genuinely felt fast, but was tight. Um, and yeah, shout out to the vehicle sequences, by the way, which were awful. They were just the worst. Like the fact that this game is just sits in such a revered spot in my mind and that I enjoyed it so thoroughly despite those vehicle sequences was un just crazy. It was like an early PS2 tech demo. They were freaking awful. Yeah, I mean, and I like the idea of this game that goes... You know, we want a character that can harness technology and, you know, magic slash spiritualism and great um, uh, sharpshooting abilities and the power to fuck him, his way out of any problem that he could possibly, you know, like he's just like he can bang his way through the universe yeah. from one star cluster. He doesn't to the even next. need to take the mask off. Um, anyway, so, you know, Mass Effect had a great storyline it had very fun sometimes a little janky but very fun action rpg shooting right um and the vibe of the game the environments the normandy the the visual design in the sci-fi uh world that they created was both familiar and also unique you know it 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 felt homey. It felt like you knew what the rules of the universe were, but the design aesthetic felt uniquely Mass Effect. And to this day, it's one of my favorite sci-fi settings um, in just about any medium. Now, do the, does the organization that uh, Commander Shepard um, belongs to remind you of, like, if uh, America had sort of won the race to be who the Earth is controlled by, does it feel like, is Commander Shepard an American? No. No, and, and I can see why you would think due to the way that the game is portrayed that there might be a smattering of that. There's just not. Yeah. You know, the culture of the game, no. the way that the humans are portrayed in that game just has a distinctly unpolitical flavor to it. It's a very... Gotcha. It's more of a star a Starfleet kind of thing rather than uh, a Halo kind of thing. Like in Halo, you can tell they're like, Americans won, point blank, <laughs> period. Yeah, man. No, it's it, it's a game that's very much about the about the the individuals in it so it's it's a yeah mass effect for me um the best storytelling experience i've ever been part of in a video game uh and you know i feel like that's saying a lot because there's a lot of really strong story games out there mass effect was my number five yeah. for sure yeah space rpg good genre mm. 
Number four. Number five. <laughs> uh, Andy, um, uh, for me, uh, the next one coming in is uh, second verse, same as the first. Sam and Max hit the oh. road. Another LucasArts gem. I did. I did not jump into Sam and Max. It always looked like zany enough to be a Teletoon cartoon or like a you know it 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 never really struck me as a game. It always looked like something that was a, a cartoon. I don't know how else to put it. It's, this game is like it's super couched in like well worn tropes and totally unexpected hijinks and insane right. like you mentioned but in a way that totally works for me you know uh you got uh, sam who is a, a hard-boiled detective mm. and max who is his lovable companion um and they happen to be a, a dog and a bunny rabbit or zach or as um sam uh repeatedly says a lagomorph which is just a fun way to say bunny um and you know you get on onto a case rather quickly and uh hilarity ensues we're talking about the scum engine again we're talking about uh tim schaefer and his crew again which wikipedia tells me the other fellas are uh dave grossman and ron gilbert um and these guys were the guys responsible for monkey island and they they, i mean they take that brand of humor to an equally awesome place yeah I, again, I haven't haven't played the game, so I'm I'm not quite sure what that aesthetic is. But it sounds, it sounds neat, and it's making me feel like I want to go back to the golden days of of trying out these point and click games because they were a good good time. The voice acting is great, and Andy, who you'll relate to is Sam. He's the straight laced. He keeps everything on the rails. He's reasonable. And then there's Max, um, who is constantly being ridiculous and derailing things. He's got an energy level close to an 11. Um, you now Sam goes, I think I got something in my eye. And Max goes, why don't you dig it out with a fork? That's what I always do. <laughs> so was it, so Sam and Max hit the road. Was it the original or was there one previous to it? That's the one, So buddy. there's no other That's Sam and Max titles, just the one. No, actually, Teletale, um, it's Sam and Max have had a life as a cartoon after that mm. with the guy whose voice who does the Leon's commercial, I think. And then uh, has had a series of releases that I admittedly haven't played uh, of Telltale games. I've had a series of releases also. Couldn't resist. <laughs> had to go there. Had to go there. It sounds, <laughs> it sounds like a great one, man. It sounds like a genuinely great one. And I say this because um, the sense of humor that these games like the level of humor that these point and click titles has to maintain to either be funny or not be funny is a pretty high standard because you're spending so much time with dialogue and you're spending so much time with character development as opposed to necessarily gameplay, right? Um, so I imagine that, uh, you know, if would you say that it approaches the level of humor that like your Monkey Island does or is it different? Yeah, it's not as subtle with the humor, It's it, it, but uh, it's it like definitely more gets there. features... That's it's you said it right off the bat. It's like it's it's zany. It's a little bit over the top. Sometimes you could it could go into slapstick, but you know it features ridiculous situations with ridiculous answers. You need to get a mood ring that you can discover is actually at the center of the giant, the world's biggest ball of yarn. Right. And the way you get it is by equipping uh, an extending punch glove, re-equipping it with a fish magnet that you stick into the, the ball of yarn and it, it pulls this severed hand out that has the, the, the ring on it, the mood ring that you need to get. 
and when you it gets you there in a way that's at the same time totally reasonable once you suss it out but also ridiculous and to to tell your brain to think outside the box with something that's so crazy but also logical it's a beautiful it's a beautiful brain teaser with uh like just genuinely funny and charming writing all the way around right. it of this pair yeah, um, you said you, you said know, that and it felt like that's the most arbitrary random series of events and i think back it's not just sam and max that was like that a lot of the king's quest games a lot of the space quest games on the sierra side of things the actions that needed to be taken were equally nonsensical I mean, today I can barely find my iPhone. Back then, I can't really understand how, as a much younger person, I was able to puzzle myself through those games. A lot of pixel hunting, I think was the term for it, where you're just going from stage to stage and trying every item on every square inch of your monitor, right? I hope, I hope not. I mean, the thing that, that, that I try to identify is, number one, pick up everything. Right. That's, that's a given, right? Um, standard rule. Look at what the game is offering you. What's being served up? You got a giant ball of yarn. Well, that's something. You go to look at it, you go, ah, I can't see into it. But you also have a telescope in your inventory that you pulled off uh, uh, an observation deck. So you like look and he's like, it's good for looking at things. So you use the telescope on the ball of yarn, right? And, uh, you, you know, that's one of the most key things is in is is looking at your items so you go here's my situation what do i got you pop open your inventory and you tell sam you know look at the fish magnet he's like it's it's a fish with a magnet on it <laughs> and then the punch glove he's like it's an extender with a punching glove on the end and you put them together he goes oh now i should be able to reach something you know or you look at max and he goes it's max <laughs> I, I it's my adorable buddy ooh, max now that you position it that way it does sound a, a lot more logical but it, it, it is funny to think back like you, you were mentioning the other day with monkey island how you had to find the key in the cereal box right yeah, that was that was an all time stumper. Right, there's just these these moments in these games that seem to be maybe maybe you're also correct. They're they're designed to have you reaching for the strategy guide and whatever monetization <laughs> whatever monetization they've decided on uh, of the day. But um, it's it's crazy to think that in a pre Google age, I managed to puzzle my way through the majority of those King's Quest and Space Quest games, and I'm sure you can probably draw a parallel with the two that you've already talked about. Oh, 100%. And you never played these games alone, or I didn't. I always had like a, a squad of people with me. So we're all kind of working on it. Try this, try that, you know. Right, yeah. Played with my brothers and sisters. We're clustered around it, trying to trying, trying to figure out our way through. Um, this is a funny thing about uh, Monkey Island is there's a gag in it while you're wandering through this forest. If you look at this particular stump that doesn't stand out completely but stands out a little bit, um, it goes... It goes into a text about you finding a secret tunnel and crawling in, and then it says insert disc twenty two. Because <laughs> you got stumped. And and there are no there are no discs twenty two. So it's just kind of a gag to to and if you click cancel, it goes, Oh, I guess it was nothing, and he climbs back out. The hint line at, at LucasArts got so many calls about this these two gags. There's a gag like that in two places that in the remake they took it they took they it had out. To, they had to cut and back on their customer support staff, so they had to remove that particular like, puzzle. Too many people are are calling us about this, and I'm sure you can probably find it being googled on the web. Mm, crazy. Oh, the glory days of point and click adventures. Sam and Max, one that I missed, but um, yeah, I'm feeling I'm feeling less for it. I'm feeling less for it. Um, now, number four is Morrowind. 
And Morrowind is one of those games that I often go back to when I want to talk about a game feeling vast, a game having a sense of exploration, feeling limitless in the spa- in the in the space of also having infinite mods. Just like Neverwinter Nights, you know, I find myself kind of drawn to these games that have the promise of a community that's going to create content, right? To me, that's exciting because it feels like the game that I could be playing today and taking the time to to learn today could be vastly different tomorrow or could have a ton of new options that I hadn't even considered tomorrow. And Morrowind was exactly that. In fact, even now, people are still modding things for Morrowind, everything from total conversions all the way on down to graphical upgrades. Like you can go into Morrowind with an upgrade that'll take, I mean, it uses up gratuitous amounts of processing power and graphical power um, just because it's not optimized at all, but takes Morrowind, which is a fairly basic polygonal game all the way on up to like around an oblivion level of graphical intensity, right? Um, And it's absolutely wild to jump into something that was fan created and certainly not by the studio uh, and kind of realize that the game over the past 10 plus years has been changed into something altogether that it was never intended or meant to be um, turned into. So it's, it, it is a game as a base game without any additional mod support was still bigger than anything I'd ever played before. You know, I did you, did you do a little journeying around in Morrowind? Morwin's the one that I played the least, but I did play a little bit, and I I, I agree with what you've said. And what I my experience was like you said that the the combat was a little bit janky. You know, it felt like swinging oh yeah uh, a, a a paddle like an oar around every time you swung an axe like you're like swinging a ten foot oar. Yeah, it was bad combat. Um, and I I just mean straight bad. Like in that in that time when Morrowind was around. I'm not sure that there were any other fantasy games. Even today, I'm not sure, with the exception of like a Witcher 3, that there are a ton of fantasy games out there that can do um, you know, combat justice with swordplay, right? But Morrowind was particularly exactly as you described it, like swinging an oar around. But that didn't matter one bit because the combat was largely irrelevant in that game. You were there because the world felt huge. There were like the the actual setting in and of itself had such iconic um, design elements. Like there were segments in the world of Morrowind that looked so distinct from one another, and that gave the game like an like to give you an example. There was a um, there's a part of the the Morrowind world that is made up of almost like plant dwelling homes that are all interspersed together on giant beanstalk looking things. And it's just an aesthetic that you, you know, don't often see or that I hadn't seen before in video games. And it's crazy because you just spend your time or I spent my time running across this enormous island, which felt larger and probably was larger than any game that had come before it by probably an order of magnitude. And you'd continue to stumble across these extremely distinct looking places. And the sense of scale was massive. You know, you'd go to a city like the one it's called, uh, uh, it's called Vivek. And it's this almost archival, enormous, you know, hallway laden place that you could get lost in for like an hour. Right. And that's just one tiny segment of the world map. So the sense of scale in Morrowind was something that felt like even later titles have failed to achieve. Maybe that's just because of my memories or, you know, where I was at 
uh, or what Morrowind did to bring large scale games to the table. Um, but to this day, the grottos and the caves and the dungeons that that game had felt absolutely infinite. And I don't know that there's a game out there right now, including its two successors, including Skyrim, that gives me that same feeling. You know what I mean? I, I think you're right. And I totally get what you mean. And I think it has a lot more to do with when we encountered it, because I think it's like my EverQuest experience. It's like a game that made your brain question, like, how big can a game be? And as you discover it, it's, it feels so like such a uh, an expansive space, like your mind can't quite get it. By the time you've played, you know, for me, EverQuest, like 10 different MMORPGs, and you've played a bunch of open world games, your brain can now conceive of a world that big, right? But before it's like, it's almost unbelievable how this, this place goes on and on and on. And you really experience it because for the most part, there's no fast travel. If you're going to go there, you you walk it. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm entirely on the same same page. You either walk it or you take a silt strider, which, by the way, those, <laughs> those are the most badass mass transport system that a fantasy world has ever, uh, has ever concocted. Um, the silt strider was like a giant stalking beetle that would walk you through the marsh and, uh, you know, and park you at your fast travel destination of choice. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just character bits like that. It wasn't whimsical like a, like a Zelda, you know, it wasn't, you know, hard edged and, and Nordic or, um, austere, like a witcher, right. Wasn't, you know, colorful and bright, like a, the world of Warcraft. It had its own fantasy vibe that wasn't too gritty that wasn't too fantastical that felt just real enough to be you know exciting and visceral but just whimsical enough to to have character right and not just be a series of you know towns that look roughly the same in different configurations and dungeons that are all made of the same material right it was uh yeah. that game was so diverse and still, you know, has, has my full attention from an imaginative perspective. I'd love to go back and, and even in the, which is admittedly very low fidelity textures now and the way that that game looks, um, I'd still be thrilled to spend a ton of hours jumping through. I wonder if there's a repack. Um, what do you mean by a repack? Because I bet you there is. Like something with uh, uh, redone skins, uh, you know, an update on the look. I had mentioned, Quickly, yeah, for sure know? there is. It, yeah, the, that's that's one of, the, one of the most popular mods out there for sure. Oh, brilliant. Um, one of my favorite plants in this game, things you can come across, and something I remember from the game is you come across this crumpled body in basically the middle of this right. field. When you search it, it's got, the guy's wearing wizard robes, and he's got a scroll of... Mm, I think it's jump. Yes. And there's actually a description about the spell that he's like, he's has a note, a journal about the spell he's been trying to uh, write. And if you use this scroll, you jump like through three zones. Like you jump, jump. like an impossible. Yeah, it's crazy. Distance. You jump like the ground disappears and you're in the air for, I want to say like 30 or 40 seconds. Yeah. However, when you land, your fate can be that of the mage crumple and, and dead. Indeed, yeah, it, it you know? often is. I I know exactly what you're talking about, and that that little bit of world building there was that's you, you hit the nail on the head. That's Morrowind in a nutshell, right? 
not ridiculously zany, very logical. In fact, you, you actually pick up a journal that's on the mage that talks about him discovering this spell, right? He's like researching this spell and comes out into the middle of the swamp to try it and dies an unfortunate death at its hands. And that whole description is exactly the vibe that Morrowind plays out throughout the whole game. And so I remember I love created solutions. What we did was we used it to jump up the coast in a direction we knew we'd land in the water, but not like too far. Ahead. Right. Gotcha. 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 Dude, I just looked at the clock and my eyes rolled into the back of my head. This is a three hour podcast at this point. So you know what that of means? Of course. That means we have to continue episode 20 into the next episode. No, you got this thing all wrong. It means the exciting conclusion to the top 10 list of Purple Dungeon Squid will come to you in episode 21. Oh, man. Title to be determined. How's that for a plot twist? It's go- it should be called uh, episode 21, Broken Boast. <laughs> Broken Boast. Yeah, boy, I really thought we were going to get to the end of this list. Um, and unfortunately, we didn't. Now, I think... It turns out you and I can wax poetically about games for an extremely long period yeah, of time. Yeah, who would have thought that we could just talk and talk and talk? And but like, truth be told, I think a normal top 10 list could easily have been plowed through in the bounds of an hour. But every single one of these games means so much to each of us that I just, you know, I mean, it's kind of a foregone conclusion that we'd spend just a little bit too much time. Top 10 games that you never stop can never stop Top talking about. Top 10 games that are near and dear to your heart and unlock memories to your childhood that you couldn't live without. Yeah, and it, it's funny. We're going through the list. Every time we move on, I'm like, both, all our games, I could, well, there's like 20 more things that you could say about Yeah, exactly. Except for Banjo-Kazooie. There's a lot more I could say to you about that. Real, it's a real shit. Yep, no kidding. Um, all right, guys. Well, let's let's bring this into Doc here. We'll uh, we'll jump back in and finish up this episode the next time um, we tune into Purple Dungeon Squid. Now, I'm going to be away next week, so there may be a little hop, skip, and a jump between this episode and episode 21, but hey, we're all about building tension here, aren't we, Dan? We are indeed, and maybe this is the perfect uh, episode to conclude back half style. Um Oh, with an over our first overseas podcast. Maybe yeah, that's what maybe happens. it's possible. Maybe it's possible. And I we're all it. about rising action here as well. Level 20 or episode 21 and beyond. That's where the real mystery unlocks. Who knows where we're going with this bad boy mm, to infinity and beyond listener questions or games you want us to play purple dungeon squid at gmail.com. And now that you know we're uh, a 20 stack in, recommend us to your friends because we're the real deal, my man. Yeah, once you got 20, you're never going to be short a penny. Make sure you follow us on Instagram, at Purple Dungeon Squid. Until next time. Uh, Please, my friends, keep it dank. Fuck, I am high. Thinking more than I normally do. I got like a real funk on. <laughs> lumpy. I'm just. You almost said lumpy. It yeah. feels like lumpy. Lumpy. Let's get back into it.
Carrie O'Filene. 